I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <coughs> Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Legend says that a crystal skull was stolen from a mythical lost city in the Amazon. Supposedly built out of solid gold, guarded by the living dead. Whoever returns the skull to the city temple will be given control over its power. You will help us find it. A simple yes will do. So, we will do this old-fashioned way. Put your hands down, will you? You're embarrassing us. Don't touch anything. This one has been a long time coming, and it's probably the most challenging of the four indie movies to talk about, maybe even the most challenging Spielberg, because of how strongly everyone feels about it in different directions. And to accomplish this, befitting the film, we organized a great Indiana Jones reunion, bringing back everyone who has guested on our shows on his previous adventures. So please welcome back from the Raiders of the Lost Ark show, it's Kevin Vai. Hello, Kevin. Hello, everybody. From Temple of Doom, it's Chris Chipman. Hey, everybody. And from The Last Crusade, it's James Batchelor. I've been waiting for this one since you started doing movie podcasts. 2010, I've been waiting to talk about this film with you. I think you came on, the, oh, your first episode you ever came on was our fourth, which was the original Star Wars. And I was like, any film you want to talk about? And you were like, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I was like, okay. <laughs> so this will be one good. decade later. It's, it's also worth noting that Chris also guested on The Last Crusade show. And we're having a drinking game on this episode. Every time that James references John Williams, take a shot, folks. And the same goes for every time Kevin somehow ties in a link to Doctor Who. We shall all oh, be completely... Completely right, really? smashed before we get to Peru. Oh, how <clears throat> cool do I feel against I'll your audience? I'll try to restrain myself this go round. Don't worry. <laughs> and, I have iced tea on, and I have iced tea on hand, so no worries. Nice. <laughs> I'm sitting in my car at work, and I have to drive home. Don't hold back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, as I said, this film is a challenge to discuss, and I meant it. This is a movie that emerged in 2008 during an astonishing year of blockbusters. In the space of just a few months, we got Kung Fu Panda, Wall-E, Prince Caspian, Cloverfield, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, as a blockbuster, I suppose, Wanted, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, going up against this one, I suppose, Quantum of Solace, Mamma Mia, Speed Racer, Hancock, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, and The Goddamn Dark Knight. 
A few of these films were iffy or kind of rubbish. Most were good. Some were great. Some were wildly popular. Some were revolutionary. And a few more were all-time classics. So the fourth Indiana Jones film would have to be straight-up amazing to compete with these. And it still managed to come in second highest in terms of box office that year, beaten only by Batman. Or, if we're honest, Ledger's Joker. Now, it's surprising when you look into the technical production of Crystal Skull that this largely retained the old-fashioned, practical, in-camera sensibility for a great proportion of its screen real estate. However, 19 years had elapsed since the third and, at the time, presumed closing adventure. And that is a lifetime in evolving digital effects. Since Last Crusade, we'd had Jurassic Park, Independence Day, Titanic, The Matrix, four Harry Potters, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Spider-Man trilogy, and of course, all three Star Wars prequels. This meant industrial light and magic were primed and ready to accentuate many shots and sequences with digital effects, giving it a different look to the original trilogy. And it was set in 1957, appropriate with the amount of time that had passed. But that meant a different world, historically, sandwiched between the Nazi uprisings, first in Germany and then in America. Indy was now smack in the middle of the Cold War, an era of paranoia, when we feared what would turn out to be entirely correctly that the Russians would manipulate the minds of our leaders and our people and destroy the very foundations of democracy. Every time I've mentioned Indiana Jones on Twitter this year, and since we've been covering Spielberg throughout, that is a lot of times, someone has remarked that this fourth film is rubbish. A lot of people maintain that it doesn't even exist the way that the Matrix sequels are disavowed. But for all of those objections to its very existence or protestations of still painful disappointment 12 years on, there are a number of people who really have a great time with it. And on their part... They can't understand why it is so loathed. What's challenging for us here is that everything vitriolically bad to say about this film feels like it's already been said. There's only so many times you can kick whatever the polar opposite of a sacred cow is. I'm guessing for the above-mentioned first group that would make it a disgraced dead horse. But... What does that make it for the second group, but a wounded animal that they want to take in and nurture, even though it's awkward and clumsy and screws up sometimes, they forgive it. Now, having worked our way through Spielberg's oeuvre for over 40 years of his progress, one thing that has become entirely apparent is that he has more approaches than you might suspect on casual inspection of just the classics. Crystal Skull is definitely not Raiders. It is a different beast to Temple, and it sure as hell isn't Last Crusade either. And there's a definite reason we didn't cover all four of these in a single, uninterrupted month. We were interested in seeing what changed in the approach over the 27-year window of Harrison in the hat. And I happen to know for a fact that on this show we have a group of people, some of whom had a total blast, Chris, others of whom found a mixture of joy and frustration. James, what we're going to aim for is not to pronounce this one, one thing or another in totality, but to discuss its strengths and its weaknesses with a mind to context and critical thinking and kindness. And hopefully we'll have some laughs along the way. Now, we don't usually tend to go let's have a balanced discussion about this that's not really what our show's for 
but sometimes a film falls in our lap that we just we don't just want to say one thing about it and like i said this film's so divisive i feel like it warrants that back and forth so i actually have quite a lot to say about what i feel are the uh, disappointing kind of failings of this film and its strengths but I've saved them for a, a longer section at the end what we're gonna do before then is just talk through the film and allow those of us who really love certain bits to talk about why we really love so those certain bits and those of us who are annoyed to hell with certain bits to do the same so we begin with making a molehill out of a mountain <laughs> As uh, we reprise the Paramount logo uh, dissolving into something as it's done for all the Indiana Jones films. Now, to recall, uh, it was a mountain that turned into a mountain, then a mountain that turned into a mountain that was mounted on a big silver gong thing that Indy would then hide behind as a bullet shield, then a mountain that turned into... Another mountain? Or like a canyon? Mm. uh, The the precipice of a canyon? And, And then... It's like a molehill with a little CGI gopher thing that I, I think so many people just kind of like it, it irritated people immediately so fast <laughs> that people sort of zeroed in on this. I don't think that this, like, as I will say later, I don't think this is one of the real problems of the film. But uh, does anyone want to say anything about the gopher? They might like the gopher. They might not. The like only the, the only thing I can say about the gopher, and I'm not I'm not as offended by the gopher as, as people might expect. My only understanding of the gopher is that was around the time that that dramatic gopher video was. Oh, dun, dun, dun. I remember that. <laughs> That's the only reason that can be that the gophers are in this film, as far as yeah, I can tell. Because uh, I suspect that too, James. I oh my god! Do. I've no, just it, thought of no, a new no, way I can re-edit no. Crystal Skull. <laughs> and, and, not, and not only that, but also I think one of the reasons why it's used as a comedy beat also is because maybe it's like Spielberg kind of winking at Caddyshack or something. I don't. Yeah. Know. I was honestly from James. I was expecting a vendetta against this gopher bordering on Caddyshack. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. I'll tell cool. you what, the, the opening few minutes, like a tough this sound if i if i'm going to be positive i'm going to be positive i like that they're using the font from the from raiders and crusade for the mm. other titles mm-hmm. like, I, I love odd. that detail too that's one thing that jumped out at me when i saw the movie in the theater with my mom back in 2008 so yeah that that i was like oh the raiders font nice yeah yeah it just it, it, it kind of it's it's in keeping it's kind of like you know like starting a bond film without a gun barrel i was like okay no that's 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 the indiana jones font mm. that's okay the thing that throws me shots at the standby is not having John Williams to begin with. It's having friggin' Hound Dog by Elvis. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love, I love a bit of Elvis, but hearing, hearing real world music rather than John Williams. To pl- I'm yeah. keep saying John Williams. To plunge <laughs> you into it. Yeah, take two shots, folks. Uh, to plunge you into a very specific time. It, it it was a tool, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't immediately scream indie for a bit. No, think back to like the opening John Williams cues. Oh, okay, let me, yeah. And Crusade. Like, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to use this opportunity to say about the, the music in general. Like, the use, so they use Hound Dog and they use another real song during like the, the bar fight um, mm. about 20, 30 minutes in. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, that is the only time real world music is used non. Is it diegetic? Where it's like it's within the scene? It's 
it's not diegetic yeah. music. It, it is played over the top of the film. It's played for the audience. Yeah. No one in the um, oh yeah, because it suddenly it ramps up the volume, which obviously yeah. it yeah. Is that the one where Mutt gets into like a a bar fight and then yeah. he runs out into the square and then he he takes a kid's scooter and then he skates off the, uh, down the road and then those greasers run after him and and his mom says, "Isn't he a dreamboat?" I hate Manu. Wrong movie, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It's really jarring hearing, and I know they were trying to set the scene, and like you know, just a reminder, this is the fifties, but they didn't do that in the first three films. So to hear yeah. non-John Williams music in a traditionally John Williams music scored film, I mean, they couldn't really for uh, um, Last Crusade because it would have been what's the pop music of nineteen thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the, the only, gramophone out. I, don't, I know there's like occasionally you hear like a radio or something in the original trilogy, but the only other time yes. they used a a song, mm. yeah, like a, a vocal song I can think of is the opening of Temple of Doom, which is the um, Anything Goes Chinese yeah. version of Anything Goes. Anything Goes. Mandarin. Anything goes. Mandarin. Even then, yeah. Even then, has been John Williamsified to that be something clang. unique. <laughs> I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. And also, it serves multiple purposes there because it's setting the scene and it's also introducing one of the characters. Mm. So it's it's yeah. doing more than that. The the hound dog playing, uh, and you're right, it doesn't feel diegetic because they could have done it like tinny and on one of the car radios, yeah. but it specifically isn't. But that it's not introducing anything in particular. That feels very Lucasy because obviously he's behind American Graffiti, so I, I feel like he was... The, I can feel Lucas's pressuring arm in this one quite a bit. Pause, I was going like, to say. Like he's like, oh, maybe yeah. we could start with some hot rods, Stephen. <laughs> oh, Lord, that never gets old. <laughs> with another another movie um, that we've done recently that I've been on for, um, it reminds me of Flight of the Navigator. At the beginning of the film, you have a car drive by to put that you're in the 70s, yeah. and they're playing um, the song from Greece. And that was yeah. a good knock. That director because he directed Greece. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the, to talk about the the Gopher really quick, I always took it. Now in, in 2008, the Gopher was one of the things that really, really, really upset me, and oh, yeah. I don't, I can't tell you why. Then it just seemed, it seemed like CGI animal humor. Yeah. Was wasn't Indiana Jones? Yeah. Mm. Is is my takeaway from it? Looking back on it now. I look at it more as like it's it's kind of like a nod to place you like each movie's mountain change from the Paramount logo, Paramount logo is to put you in place and time, and you know. And there were just gophers everywhere in the fifties. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's more to put the middle of. It's to put you in something that you could use in the middle of a flat desert. Okay. As. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It would it would be more jarring if we'd gone from Paramount logo to just fade into a flat scene of Nevada. Like mm. that would have been worse. Oh, I, you I thought this no was a mountain? This ain't your mama's Indiana Jones. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I no, I think I'm making large assumptions about a sizable member um, amount of the pop of the. Uh, we audience. are making a mountain out of this molehill out we of a mountain indeed. at this but, point. No, no, no. <laughs> a lot of real estate. We haven't even got off the first second. I would I would suggest that the 
gopher is kind of representative of something that I think people probably took issue with throughout the whole film, which is that there are lots of details in this which are echoes of things that have happened in earlier Indiana Jones films, Mm. but they are presented in a way that suggests that the people who created them picked up on the detail but didn't pick up on what that detail is supposed to mean. Maybe. Mm. We've got to move on. I've got to keep us going. In this one, I'm going to be strict. Um... After uh, first off, they use the actual drag racing of a bunch of teenagers going, "Oh, please race with us, Soviets," uh, as as you normally would. Um, uh, and then well, the well, guy they're wearing U.S. Army fatigue, so they're disguised. Ah, so they, as okay. far as they can no, tell, you're right. Because although one detail that jumped out at me yeah. when I was watching the podcast, one of those soldiers in the car was wearing was wearing sneakers. Yes, nice. I picked up on the exact same thing, Kevin. I was about okay. To good. Say, I'm glad. Why is he wearing sneakers with his army uniform? But if he's in disguise, I mean, that would explain it. What's that? Nikkei, well, some kind of engine writing. Well, well, they look like Converse <laughs> chucks to me, but yeah. You know, but then again, I wear those when I'm not at work. So, mm. <laughs> but. So, but still, I was uh, I, I was a little confused by it. But then I realized, wait, no, maybe it's for comfort reasons while they're driving the car, and then maybe they'll change into the boots after they get out of the car to kind of, you know, when let's say infiltrate the army base or whatever. You know, I, I mean, that's my theory. I could have done with a uh, a Soviet admonishing another one for wearing sneakers, and he was like, "It's for comfort." Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. that would have been a nice little comedy, but. Point, you know, and they would have said it in Russian or something. Yeah. yeah, but this scene does go out of its way to kind of humanize the effective bad guys of this by, like, when the teenagers are like, please race with us. Like, the guy driving the, the car is like, yeah, I'm going to gun that throttle and actually does race with them, but not in, like, a sneering, I'll show these Americans way, but just in a kind of, yeah, let's have some fun way, mm-hmm. which will lead yeah. into a question I'm going to ask about the uh, the Soviets being the baddies in this. It also yeah. sets up a juxtaposition between these teenagers who are very carefree and, you know, feel comfortable. Well, teenagers didn't exist before this decade, basically. Well, indeed. But compare that to Mutt and the difficulties that he is having to deal with and the circumstances Mm. that he's processing. Okay. Now, for one of the best shots in the whole series, I've got to, like, take my hat off mm, to Janusz Kaminski here for the, uh, just the introduction of Indiana Jones. Like, in the original uh, Raiders, you know, he gets that fantastic silhouette introduction and he's exploring and he's this mysterious man. Then he gets to look like Humphrey Bogart. Then it's, oh, he's a kid, but then he gets his hat and then he sort of, and then punched. And you get that wonderful kind of sense of flashback bringing us back to now. And here he's really on the back foot. He gets tossed out of a trunk. And you're like, oh, poor Indiana Jones. He's this crumpled old man. But then his hat on the ground battered and slightly dented. You don't see him. You just see his feet. He picks it up and he slowly, in silhouette, puts it on his head while Williams finally makes his appearance. And then the camera pans up to Harrison Ford's craggy, but not as craggy as it has become, face. Russians. And that, I would like to posit, is a really excellent introduction moment. I agree. I I agree, too. I mean... uh... I actually saw some of the behind-the-scenes stuff after I finished watching the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Ray Winstone, who pl- who we'll get to in a moment, uh, he actually said like that's when, when he saw Harrison doing that and how they shot it. That's when he realized, shit, I'm in an Indiana Jones movie. This yeah. is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> 
I will say, like, so you said about the craggy face. Like, I will say, like, the... Because I remember people at the time were like, oh, you know, Harrison Ford's clearly just too old for this. I actually think, like, Harrison Ford is superb in this film. Mm-hmm. He is not an issue with this film. Like, And he's kind of proved with this, with Force Awakens, with Blade Runner 2049... That man can still act. Like you see him, you see Call him of the Wild as well. He's fucking fantastic. Isn't I it? haven't seen that oh, yet. Like, watch you it. See, you see him interviewed, and he's clearly not quite, or whether he'd rather be at home in an armchair. Oh, he don't give a but fuck. He's, he's like, oh, what, do, what do you want me in here for? He's like Grunkle yeah. Stan. Yeah. <laughs> That, that, that was actually an interview I saw with him once around the time he was promoting this movie, and uh, and they showed a little montage of like like an old man doing trying to do the, all the stunts and Indiana Jones stuff while da, 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 was playing in the background and stuff, and Her- and Harrison Ford quipped, "Oh, that's my stunt double." Nice. <laughs> so at least he has a he, sense of humor about it he's, a little bit. He's just he's just brilliant. He's so believable. Again, as I was genuinely worried. He's like, this is gonna because nobody ages gracefully. None of us, none of us are gonna age gracefully. I was so worried watching this. This is gonna be like, oh god, he's gonna look old. And like they in the trailer, they'd shown the whole he swings for the truck and flies back. It's like, damn, I thought that was close. It's like, oh god, it's gonna be two hours yeah. of oh, old jokes. One and person actually, ages you know, gracefully. Still, ben Burt. He doesn't seem to get a day older. No. I guarantee in his pocket he's got the one ring. You haven't tasted a day, Ben Burt. What is up with that guy? I don't know if it's just me, but I don't think Karen Allen aged that much between Raiders and this movie. No, she's luminous. I mean, she doesn't seem to have much grey in her hair, from what I could tell. So. Yeah. Sorry, carry on, Jones. No, just uh, just the 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 del- the. Perf- <coughs> so Jesus! Just Someone's the- aged a day. Just the, the quality of his performance throughout this entire film is superb, which kind of highlights that it's it's the material that's lacking, not him. Like, particularly whenever he's in an Indiana Jones scene, so when he's got the leather jacket, the fedora, even mm. like action scenes where it's clearly slightly slower than action scenes typically would be because to to account for the fact that he's that little bit older, mm. you still believe he could beat the poo out. You can of say the shit. Come on. Oh, can I? I, I like a sailor, censoring myself. He could beat the shit out of a Soviet, and you believe him. You believe that, mm. like so. I just, I, you say craggy face. I, in, Harrison Ford is one of the few things that keeps me going through this film. Mm. When I say craggy face, what I mean is that that is his character. He's always kind of had a craggy face, mm. even as Han Solo yeah. is like hokey religions and ancient weapons. Like there's a bit of crag in there, <laughs> and he's always been a grumpy fuck, which I love. So um, Russians. The way that that line hangs, it always feels like Indy should have said, I hate these guys. But in 2008, they were allegedly our allies. Mm. Now, factoring in Irina Spalko as our main villain, how does this... This is a big and expansive question. How does this climate of better red than dead, Cold War paranoia, change the tone of this film when compared with the impending threat of the Nazis in film one and film three, and I suppose the machinations of the thuggy cult of film two? They just don't seem like as big of bad guys. That's mm. that's one of his biggest yeah. um, biggest issues for me. Um, and again, I still love it. Is is uh, you know I had a lot of fun with it. It, it there never seems to be a big threat. It just seems like two different groups of people. It would be like if they pit Indiana Jones just against a rival archaeologist for two hours. There's no, there's no weight to what they do. We don't really see them murdering or offing anybody. They shoot all the American soldiers guarding Area 51, and they kill a whole bunch of those natives at the end. 
Okay. You know, I feel like Indian men would have done the same thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? If if they had not had the skull, just I th- thought there would have been a big battle there. You know what God. I mean? Or they probably would have had more more scruples than the Russians did to be like, could you please back off? Actually, at that one point, I, I thought the um, what would have been really good. You know how uh, Ox gets out the skull and like holds it up, and all of these natives covered in mud, you know, poking spears at them, who are like, oh, oh, the skull, and like Singaya, like they're sort of all like back off. Would it not have been better at that moment for Indy, not Ox? To just pick up the skull and go, just relax, I know what I'm doing. And just sort of hold it up and then have them all like hold back their spears like they're, like they're threatening, but then just sort of like back up. And then Indy basically kind of gesture towards the temple that they're walking towards and just sort of like lower the skull down as though offering it to the temple and have them just yeah. slowly nod, back up, and then just slowly, quietly disappear back into the jungle. That would have been fucking hypnotic, and it would have been a perfect reversal of the opening of Raiders. Yeah, I am taking I, I this that, back. That, that, I that am sorry. Really great. Yeah. As opposed to hooga booga looga, and then oh the skull, and then when you see them next, they're all dead because the Soviets have shot them with their superior weapons. That is yeah. some George Lucas shit right there. Yeah. The, the the use of the Soviets, like it felt, always felt to me that. Almost like they, they have like, you know, George, George and Stephen have like a, an Indiana Jones checklist of like, right, how did we do this again? Right, we need some sort of large army. Um, uh, Soviets, that's relevant to the, the time period we've got. Right, and we need it because obviously like the first, you know, the, the better of the first three films, you know, Raiders and Crusade had mm. the Nazi army. So I was like, right, that's another one. We need Indiana Jones going against an army. The Unless he goes to Argentina war. and meets old Nazis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which at the moment, you know what? I'm fine with that. I'm fine with the idea of, like, if they made an Indiana Jones film now, like, post-Covid, and it's like, I'm hunting down ex-Nazis, and I'm going to get back this artifact they stole. And, uh, yeah. Hell, you know what? Well, I don't face off against the KKK, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> Do you know what oh, I mean? Oh, I'd love that. Bloodbath. <laughs> yeah, at, th- at that point, suddenly, Indy turns into Django Unchained. But, yeah, let's, we're getting off the uh, point here a bit. Yeah, you're, you're right in that the Soviets never really feel that threatening. I think they're caught between trying to say, well, they're just Russians trying to do their thing for their country. but And, you know, they'll just shoot hit at them with Kalashnikovs in the jungle and kill all these natives. But I think there's, there's just something so deeply satisfying about punching and offing Nazis, especially with, with like, in like particularly gory ways. There's nothing in this movie as amazing as God getting vengeance on the Nazis. Oh, hell no. Two bro. Right, yeah. this one, even if they had come up with some fake subplot of something awful the Russians were doing outside of the awful things they were actually doing at the time, mm. it doesn't hold the same weight as the movie metaphorically killing all the Nazis with the power of God. Yeah. And that's something these movies have not been able to top. You yeah. never get many scenes where it is just the Soviets, just the Russians, and advancing the story, advancing their characters. You think back to, like, the Belak scenes from mm-hmm. um, Raiders, where India is not present. It's about Belak, like, arguing with the Nazis as to, you know, what the course of action, the right course of action is. Or Donovan, um, you know, going to a local lord to try and, you know, convince him to lend them armies and a tank. Like, you never get those sort of scenes with these 
villains and therefore like they feel they almost feel like they're not present in the film let alone not threatening they're not present until indiana jones needs an obstacle to overcome mm. I, agree. I, th- I think the movie suffers um you know here because lucas was big into the mystery box thing mm. i mean everybody mystery box thing but this was at the height it was of the mid 2000s jj abrams yeah. had introduced this to the world and everyone was like oh what is inside this box lucas had this idea of i mean the minute i heard indiana jones and the crystal skull i go oh it's going to be about god aliens okay cool mm-hmm. and lucas thinks this is a big surprise like, yeah that, that's a fine point actually like you say crystal yeah. skull and like it doesn't take long to 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 work that shit out you just need to just youtube because you could have back in the day Dan Aykroyd, Crystal Skull. And he'll tell you about it. <laughs> yeah. Whether you want him to okay. or not. Oh, that is some delicious vodka, by the way. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, risk- would try it, though. <laughs> every, time John, so- uh, every time John Williams uh, uh, is mentioned, Crystal Skull vodka, clang. <laughs> we then pan in to the warehouse from the end of Raiders, which was... Uh, like I got uh, the same, I, I, I two very strong feelings at the same time. At this point, one was this soaring, "Oh my God, it's the warehouse from the end of Raiders," and the other one was, "Shit, I was actually going to put that in a book, and now I can't." <laughs> <laughs> so it was this seesaw of emotion at the same time. Yeah. My my mom had the first reaction actually, and she even leaned over and whispered to me, "Is that the warehouse at the end of the first movie nice. with all the boxes that the Ark was put in?" I'm like, "Yeah, shh." It's just in case you didn't know, John Williams plays the arc theme as it pans in. Of course he does, yeah. And and also there's a big old 51 on the doors to imply Mm. this is the Indie versus version of Area 51, which really puts it on the nose right there. And I have to give them credit for the amount of effort that they put into the practical creation of this. Oh, yeah. They they Mm. went for the same stenciling as was in Raiders. They aged up the boxes. They really... They replicated Moses' staff from the Ten Commandments. Yeah. It's just this sense of... And I think you're right, James, in combination with the fact that you're getting, quote-unquote, proper John Williams at this point. Mm. It's... I suppose this, other than the the hat and the silhouette, this is the first real we are back in back an in indie, indie yeah. movie, which is a yeah, very it's, powerful feeling. It's it's that moment when he he's running up the boxes and running away, and it's it is almost it's almost cut and paste from when he's swimming after the plane in Raiders. It is that cue, mm. um, yeah. For, it's, it's that cue, and it's like you know what? I don't care that this is lately copied and pasted. That's the music that, that it feels. It's it's the Return of the Jedi. Um, you know, Luke gets his lightsaber. And he's like, right yeah. now we're having a, a, a having a fun, having an adventure. And it's like, and I I love that section. And even, even though I, I I said it um, detractingly earlier, like the swing and the damn, I thought that was close. I was like, do you know what? I don't mind that because hey, we've got an Indiana Jones action scene. Indy is back. I'm happy with yeah. this. And there's there's trucks going all around the place, and they're not. Seeing and it looks like people could actually get hurt and it feels physical. Um, mm. Also, one little blocking part that I like, literally. Um, Indy is a captive here uh, and he is being held at gunpoint and told, you know, you will find us this thing. But he... It doesn't dominate, but he establishes dominance over his own captors by going, you know, give me, give me I need some gunpowder, I need some metal here, and then starts leading them around the place, because he's just as curious to find this thing, and mm. um, I, 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 and then he ends up standing atop a whole bunch of boxes 
standing over them, effectively like, I know this shit, you are just scrabbling in the dirt. He's not saying that in any arrogant way, but in terms of positioning and blocking and the way the shot is arranged, that is saying, Indy is not just some mawkish old man who's being held at gunpoint and forced to do the bidding of these evildoers. He's still the one who is in the know, and it did actually briefly occur to me. He is uh, obviously responsible for the box that's got the Ark in it, being buried somewhere in here. He knows about the mummified remains from the Roswell uh, autopsy. Incident, And how many of these other boxes is Indiana Jones responsible for getting hold of? That was mine, that was mine. (laughs) Oh, that's... At the risk of making a really dated Star Wars reference, Indy has the high ground. Ah. (laughs) That's apt. I will will allow that one. Um, Okay, me... James, do you remember when Neil and I teased you mercilessly about magnets? I do. I'll see if I can find the clip. (laughs) Oh, good. Back in the year 2010, on our original Star Wars episode, I don't. I've got. I've got. I've got the the full complete versions of Raiders, Temple, and um, Last Crusade, which are, as far as I'm aware, the only Indiana Jones films. <laughs> um, and in, like, in in Crusade, like there's um monkeys at the, at the start when these um <laughs> oh god no Shia LaBeouf in Crusade at the start there's aliens. Um, uh, Part where fucking hell. <laughs> Interdimensional beings, in point of fact. They've gone to <laughs> space between the spaces. Fuck off! Nuke <laughs> the fridge. I was going to say fridge. I was going to wait for James to start speaking again. you got to time it better. <laughs> wait, wait. Just let, let him start speaking. Can I go? Have you got anything left? Spaceship. Magnets. <laughs> this is where it starts to all look quite fake. Oh, yeah. As Sharon says, they did an amazing, amazing job of making this this warehouse look real. And then you just have this weird mag- you know, this weird metal dust like floating magically through the air and turning corners. Mm. And like and it's just It's got a Harry Potter kind of sound to it. A little bit, yeah. And it just, and even even now, this is the third and final time I've watched this film, and like the actual Ooh, skull final, is Jesus. magnetic. I still don't understand why the skull is magnetic, or why it attracts things that aren't magnetic, like gold. Like, I, I, it, it, it's never explained. Not that it needs to be like, well, as you know, Captain. Like, it doesn't need like a full-blown Spock analysis. But I just, I don't, I don't get it. There is a lot in this film where they're sort of like, oh, this is, uh, this is strange and unusual. But the, uh, okay, go go for it. I, sorry, I was going to say that maybe it's just operating a bit on comic book rules because because uh, to me this I mean why this film kind of looks a little bit different from the other indie films is the fact that they're kind of leading into a like a, maybe like a comic book feel to it because comics were starting to really become prevalent in the 50s to some extent so mm-hmm. maybe they were trying to evoke that feel as well and also superhero movies were kind of becoming more lucrative and everything so maybe they wanted to 
capture that vibe as well. So who knows? There's also the danger of uh, um, Bob Chipman, or your brother, just <laughs> just uh, did a really excellent uh, video on uh, Kang the Conqueror. Um, and I was like, okay, I know Kang. Whoa, whoa, I don't know Kang in anywhere near as much as I should know. Like, fuck, I've, I've got way more knowledge on X-Men than Avengers history. But he mentioned Explanium, which is the opposite of Handwavium. <laughs> Handwavium is we go uh, uh, magnets, um, but explainium is where where someone goes. Hang on, like like a reader sends in a, a letter and you say, hang on, and they say, hang on. There's dinosaurs here. How come there were also dinosaurs here? Weren't they the same dinosaurs? And then you create a whole comic issue to explainium why these things are not the same as those things. And you're like, ah, this was entirely intentional. And let me tell you, folks. The worst explainium in all cinema history, and there is an adjacent here, are midichlorians. So, shut yeah. so let's maybe wrong. be grateful that they didn't go into the explainium on this one. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Yeah. I, I have to say, I do like the, the gunpowder trick, but I, I do get what you mean, James, about it looks a little bit too everything suddenly turned magic and it's going around corners. And, and they could have made that a little bit more practical. In, if it just toss ball bearings walking, on the floor yeah, and then just was, watch them slowly move in a kind of, yeah. yeah or, or just maybe throw some gunpowder handfuls randomly as he was walking yeah. along... Um, Alley yeah, if it had been like multiple times, like, right, which way am I going? Kind of like um, you know, video game reference, I'm Ghost of Tsushima. My understanding is like, if you want to know which direction you go, you touch the touchpad and a wind, a, a quick blast of wind shows you which way to go. Yeah. If he kept on having to throw it to, to kind of go, that would have been fine. It's the fact that it's just this one cloud of magic metal dust. Yeah, it's not <laughs> the concept, it's the execution. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and uh, then the, they find the remains. And I actually had to ask you at the end of watching it the second time in two days, was there a crystal skull in those remains? Did they did they end up with two crystal skulls? The remains that are so fecking important that they're looking for them basically get found, and then the whole thing comes down to, right, we're going to kill you now, Indy. And then Indy's like, nah, because I've got my friend Mac here. And then Mac's like, nah, what can I say, Indy? I'm a capitalist, so I'm going to fall in with all of these socialists. That makes perfect sense. And... Mm. The remains pretty much get forgotten about. Indy doesn't escape with them. There's like there's no lead to the Crystal Skull. They are the beginnings of a MacGuffin. And I was saying to Sharon, wouldn't it have been better if he'd like if they'd recovered a Crystal Skull there, and that the whole film had been Indy trying to get this Crystal, like to play keep away with the Soviets with this Crystal Skull that he had seen way back during the autopsy. And that rather than going to find the one that like the the that had been taken by the um, conquistadors, that it was like trying to get this one back. But then it doesn't really fit with the fact that there's just one skull head missing from that circle. And even that, you ask questions like, so the conquistadors took one skull and nothing else. <laughs> and it's, quest I don't know, it just feels like the, the remains ended up being a, 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 a false MacGuffin that didn't actually lead anywhere. It just made Indy think, crystal skulls, huh? And then start following that trail. My understanding is the remains are that body you see in the tent in the jungle about... 40 45 minutes in yeah, yeah. do they when, so when, when, when indy's been captured again by the <laughs> soviets like after um finding a lot skull, of capturing in this one um, there's yeah, a lot of that there's um there you know he's, he's strapped to a chair and he's in a tent and they show the 
remains of you know you know clearly the rubbery body body of an alien yeah and that's one of the many points in this film where i'm like you're being too explicit but i will i will rant about that at, at, you know towards the end okay. like it's just it's a little what do you want to rant about face. it now because um like if, if like uh, I, I like to sort of keep things together and uh do you know yes well, and I, apologies, this, yeah. this will this will put all of my fir- my, my my ranting over the next okay. hour or so into context and my chris and kevin issue... who love this film by all uh, means yeah, I, counterpoint well, afterwards i, I do love it and, uh, well, i mean watching looking well, I mean, I do. Un- I don't deny it has problems, mm. but I still get a lot of enjoyment yeah. out of it, and I especially did this go round. But so. I don't want to feel like you can't. Um, you can't go. Ah, but actually, so um, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I know fair I'm, enough. I'm, I, okay. mean, I understand. I mean, I'm absolutely and, aware I'm in the minority here from the sounds of it. Well, not, not necessarily. Well, not necessarily <laughs> in the minority. There's going to be plenty of people going. Yes, yes. Say it, James. You're saying what I'm thinking. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm willing to hear him out. So okay, I, let's. I, it's not going to change my enjoyment of it one way or the other. Bingo. Right? That's cool. So. Okay, so uh, James, you have the floor. I have three issues with this film that basically undo everything for me and means I just I just hate it. Okay. One is the lack of practical effects, but we can we can touch on that as we go along. The other two, one is that it is a sudden change of genre to shifting towards alien is not the fact that aliens are in it i wouldn't mind that if it had only been the three the original three films and then this one and as you know george and stephen says like well the original three were parodying board you know uh b movies of the 30s now we're parodying b movies of the 50s like okay that makes sense that's a natural shift for the um for the thing but by this point by 2008 you have had the three movies various video games countless books Mm. probably some comics a tv series um, and even like educational books that I used to have. And this, the franchise is about historical, religious and mythological artifacts, occasionally with some sort of supernatural power or supernatural hinting. So to suddenly have aliens in the franchise is very much like if Bond suddenly went up with someone against someone with superpowers or Harry Potter turns out, you know, that magic is actually created by aliens or you know, that, that sort of like sudden dramatic jarring shift. Hmm. To, to tie it to Star Wars, I remember um, a couple of years back, people there were some people who had a bit of a problem with, I think it's the, the finale of Rebels, then suddenly um, centres around time travel, which in 30 to 40 plus years of, no, Hasn't 40 plus years of Star Wars, Star Wars has never been time travel. Star oh. Trek can do it because they do it on every other week. But if you've done 40 years and then all suddenly there's time travel, I can see why people find that jarring. The last point is that, and this kind of ties in with the the, um, the alien thing, is that it's all very explicit rather than implicit. You look back at the original trilogy or even um, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles or any of the books or any of the games or whatever, like, you know, you never meet the thing behind the MacGuffin. So you never meet God. You know, you know the Nazis. The Nazis are wiped out by the power of God. It's not some giant Monty Python hand crushing them under the th- a thumb one at a time. Better movie. Nicely not better movie. Like you can't get better than Raiders, but yeah, still a good ending. Fate of Atlantis. You do like you know the, the the classic game that everyone loves. Fate of Atlantis. You don't meet any Atlanteans here. Damn, you just spoiled that. I was alien. looking forward to meeting Atlanteans. I I still haven't gotten through that thing. I forgot about that, and I played that game. It's such a superb game. You absolutely need to play it again. It's on um, my Steam. I know. Here, you've you've got a rubber. A- okay, yeah. First of all, it's all a little bit. T- yeah, 
it, it's hinting where we're going with, as you say, it's Area 50, you know, it's Roswell, there's talk of Roswell, there's talk of Area 51. It's like, okay, well, I see where you're going, but you're still not showing me an alien. Then we're in a tent and there's a rubber alien corpse. Like, right, that is it. The curtain is lifted. There is no going back. We now know there are aliens. There is absolutely no mystery left in this. And then the end with the CGI alien and the CGI spaceship is like, there is literally no, you could walk, Indy walked, can walk away from Raiders having closed his eyes and say, you know what? I believe it was Paragod, but I don't 100% know because I didn't see what happened. Like, Holy Grail, there is enough mystery around how the Grail works, how the knight survived. You don't meet Jesus. Like, there is enough, there's enough of a distance between Indy and the MacGuffin and the thing behind the MacGuffin that it's not as in your face. This film is too in your face. It is here, here's an alien. Here's a CGI alien. Here's a CGI alien spaceship. Here's John Hurt doing his Doctor Who audition, talking about the <laughs> interdimensional beings in the space between the spaces. He shouldn't even and need to audition. They just open the door and let him in. Yeah, I didn't expect yeah. the first Doctor Who reference to come from you, James. I know, I know. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry to I'm the so war doctor. Clang. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah. that's my issue with this. And, that, and the thing is, like, no matter how many times I watch it, I can't get away from, like, you are... You say, Matt, it's not like Indy sits down with the alien and, and the alien says, You see me doing thrill seeker liquor store holdups with a born to lose tattoo on my chest? No, I, I do know. not. Like, they, they don't chat. I don't think anyone meets the alien properly except Spalco, and she's True. indisposed. But we, 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 the viewer, we, the viewer, still see. And Indy didn't see the power of God at the end of Raiders, but we did. But we didn't see God. There's hmm. just that separation that, that bothers me. Uh, even Stephen uh, asked George, because like, George had been pushing for him for aliens for quite some time, uh, like early 90s. This, this, this was not a recent thing. Uh, the point, Steve actually watched Independence Day in 1996 and, and got on the phone and said, George, we can't do aliens. Because you, you saw, like, Roland just did this enormous mothership, way bigger than the one in Close Encounters. I've done aliens in E.T. and Close Encounters, because at the time you hadn't yet done War of the Worlds. You know, it's, it's been done. We don't need to do aliens. And then George went away and had a think, and then he came back and went... What if they're interdimensional beings? And uh, Steve said, "Okay, so so what would that entail? And what would they look like?" Well, they'd kind of look like aliens. Okay, fine, we'll do aliens. God damn it, George! What <laughs> I love, it's actually in the Spielberg retrospective book, is Spielberg has the hardest time speaking ill of anybody, particularly yeah. George, his best friend. He's his right? buddy. But there's a bit in George where he goes, "All right, you know what?" A lot of people have issues with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. First two thirds of the movie, you have any issues? Speak to me. The rest of it, that was all George. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Hey, you know he's being a class act about it. I'll give yeah. him that. So if you don't like puke in the fridge, come talk to me. But if you don't like the aliens, that's all George. <laughs> and we've—I've all—I personally have already forgiven George years ago, and and just got Same. off his case because he got far too like a disproportionate amount of hate. Um, and, and vitriol directed at him, and ultimately, you know, it's his toy box. Fuck it. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, I suspect a lot of vitriol that uh, was aimed at this movie were residuals left over from the Star Wars prequels. Honestly, mm, I really yeah. do. And a big part of it, James. You know, James touched on how I felt about it now, and I didn't feel that way in 2008. In 2008, this is the first time we saw Harrison Ford in a role like this in how long? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So. Mm. 
seeing Indiana Jones back, it was so, the movie was so intent on making it be strikingly different time period, strikingly different look. I mean, Giannis Kaminsky, he, despite the digital effects, shot the hell out of this damn movie. Oh, yeah. This is a- I, I heard they actually shot the most of the, like the movie and edited it on film, actually. Oh, yeah, no, they did. Kind- they um, to, to try to keep it more authentic to the original films. Not only that they did they shoot it on on film. Uh, Steve's only ever done one film on digital, and that was Tintin because he had to because it being um, oh, animated the way I, it was. I still haven't seen that one. I oh no, it's it's one. good. You should check it out. Um, I, I want to see it because Stephen Moffat wrote the script. So. Yeah, <laughs> oh, God, Doctor Who reference. But uh, they deliberately light, uh, lit it the way that the original uh, um, cinematographer, whose name escapes me, I'll think of it in a second, for Raiders did. And just to, just to give it that sense of cohesion between the four films, and while the film itself as a whole feels more detached from the original three, you can definitely take frames from all four movies and go indie, 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 indie. Mm. And that's what I was gonna say. This time around, the thing that I found so strikingly wonderful this viewing was how great Harrison Ford was in it and I didn't feel that way in 2008 because I was Mm. just so not used to seeing Indy this way and that is 100% a failing on me as a viewer and 100% a pro on how good Ford was in this because Harrison Ford I've, I've made the comment on this show before and on other shows there are times where he phones it in um, mm. And I felt this was one of them at the time mm. and used a stark contrast of, but look at him in The Force Awakens. He's so damn good. Mm. But then I went back and watched this for the first time really since watching Force Awakens and going, oh, no, he is 100% on point in this. Mm. Like, that is not a failing of this movie at all. He is wonderful. The cinematographer for oh. Raiders of the Lost Ark was Douglas Slocum. He died in 2016 at the age of 103. Wow. Holy shit. That's he a lot. I almost wish they'd done um, almost a Force Awakens with this. So, like, as you, as you say, you were saying, Chris, like, the, the, this is so strikingly different from the previous films that I think that in itself can feel a little jarring. I absolutely understand, you know, it's been away so long. Right, let's do something different so we're not just doing the same thing. But I think Force Awakens demonstrated that you can make a film that some will argue is basically a carbon copy of your original, but delivers enough new ideas, enough new characters, enough new effects, and so forth that. It is both familiar and new at the same time, so it welcomes back series fans. We're like, look, this is just how you remember it, and then it welcomes in new fans with, this is this is how we go, this is how we do this, and then you can do an Indiana Jones five that then tries newer things, a, a Last no, Jedi, if you will. That, strangely, how they should have done that is they should have started the movie with Mutt. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah making it Mutt's story. Yeah, stop talking about. It's in. Do you know what I mean? Have him be in the group of kids driving by in the car outside Area 51 or something. Okay, you know can I... Because I mean? this leads into a huge aspect of uh, what I was going to talk about later. But I can talk about... I can do that chunk now, if that's okay. Because that's like... you, you guys, I'm very glad you mentioned this, James, because I completely agree. Uh, and I just want to crystallize uh, how, how I feel on this one. Interesting word there, crystallize. I see what you did there. Ah. Okay, so chiefly among the missed opportunities of this movie is matching the father and son tension and reconciliation of the emotional peak of the series, Last Crusade. Crystal Skull asks us to embrace Mutt, but the movie itself does not seem to love him. 
and he isn't given enough to do in order to win Indy over, and therefore the same extends to us as an audience. Keeping their familial connection a mystery weakened, this is exactly what you said, weakened rather than strengthened the film, the same as being coquettish with the true identity of Darth Sidious for two and a half movies. By the time the truth was out, we are in the third act and the action never lets up to allow the potential drama to breathe. We get no moment equal to Connery leaning over the cliff, distraught at the apparent loss of his son, before they could mend the hurt from the long empty years between them. I mean, it's almost exactly the same length of time as Mutt's been alive, uh, that that J- uh, Henry Jr. or Henry II has been away, because Mutt is also a Henry III. You know, I lost him. I, I never had a chance to do anything. That scene, followed by both of them being able to get that, that, that embrace, and indeed, I thought I lost you, boy, that bit... And Indy then desperately striving to save his dying father because now we value that relationship the way that he does. We don't get that in this. There's no bit where Indy feels like he's lost Mutt and there's no bit where Mutt feels like he's lost Indy. This was one of the first of a fresh crop of legacy sequels or sequels made with a view to continuing the world by passing the torch from the original heroes now aging gracefully to intrepid, vibrant young newcomers. And more often than not, it's the newcomer's story, just like you said, with the old warhorses playing support and providing both validation for the audiences and a firm link to the past. We saw this just seven years later in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi with Rey, basically getting the torch from both Han Solo and from Luke Skywalker and also from Leia. And also, that concept twisted in darkness with Ben. Ben! But we also saw it done extremely well recently with Kay in Blade Runner, with Laura in Logan, with Adonis in Creed, with Peter in Spider-Man Homecoming, as in he's taking the mantle of Iron Man, with Miles in Enter the Spider-Verse, with Abra in Doctor Sleep, with Danny in Terminator Dark Fate, which you have to see and nobody saw, with Cruz Ramirez in Cars 3, which nobody else saw. Hell, even Star Trek with old Spock to young Kirk in the first Abrams film, which was just a year after this, in 2009. We should have seen it in Mission Impossible and Top Gun years ago, but Tom Cruise wants to prove that he can still have black hair and run the best and forget about Fast and Furious until that baby born in 2017 comes of age. It was decreed that Vin Diesel always be the best car boy. But this film isn't really a legacy sequel. They hadn't at that point in 2008 seen how that could be done yet. It was just like the the question was always, can Harrison do this again? Not, can Harrison pass the torch? And it, the whole film was, can Harrison do this again? Yeah, he can, and yeah, we'll throw a son in to do some of the more strenuous stunts. And they didn't want to consider Indy as seeding the path for his young successor. And that's why Mutt gets his moments, but he never drives the film. That's why Indy snatches his hat back at the end. Give that back, you little bastard. And because I so... I like that moment. That made me oh, no, I like it. I like it, too. It's almost a next time, baby. What Alex... What Alex is saying is exactly why that moment falls flat because Mutt hasn't earned the hat, or at yeah. least we haven't been believed to like. Which is why rather that moment should have been if they'd done this properly in a very kind of Ray, you know, kind of you know Ray from Force Awakens kind of way. When you see that, I should have sat there and been like, ah, oh, 
yeah, actually, that would be really cool. Whereas my actual reaction in a respectfully silent and crowded cinema was to sit up straight in my chair and go, oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> You're so polite all the time. How could you possibly say that? Genuinely. But I, yeah, no, it's I... a reflective reaction. My friends, like my friends, like lent away. They're like, we're not we're not with him. Yeah. But this is <laughs> like I said, it's because the film has not really given us the opportunity to love Mark Williams. And that is a goddamn shame. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, granted, he's played by Shia LaBeouf, who was mm. a bit of a whooping boy with some fandoms already. Yeah, it's actually but, really uh, sad I mean, what I happened with him. More he... likable in this movie than in the Transformers movies, but that's just yeah, my personal. I... Oh yeah, no, when he's directed by Michael Bay, and it's all about masturbation. He like oh, he boy. was. So, I mean, but I still felt sorry for him. If you go back and listen to our Transformers shows, he annoyed us. But in Transformers Three. Like at one point, Bumblebee is is getting like trapped, and Shia LaBeouf is getting guns pointed at him, and he's going ah ah, and I'm like, that's actually real. That's Shia LaBeouf having a nervous breakdown on film, and Michael Bay's like, ha ha, you little pansy, and it's just horrible. And I, I feel really sorry for this guy because he got the shit just like Lucas, but he doesn't have Lucas's empire behind him. And when he quit acting, I completely understand why. Me too. So I mean, like, I don't, don't, I don't love him in this or his performance in this, but he's not given anything to do. Like, it, it, yeah, he's. Uh, I mean, but he's not. That's the, well, everyone, everyone. Him just being there was people like going, "Oh yeah, it's bad because it's Shia LaBeouf." And yeah. I'm like, "No, he's fine. <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong with him." Well, also, to uh, to talk about the father-son relationship, I think even before Indy finds out that. Mud is his son. Mm. I've noticed, that, at least particularly before when I was watching it, like the other day, that you know, even though he doesn't know he's his son, I feel like there's like almost like a fatherly instinct that mm-hmm. is in him a little bit mm-hmm. towards Mud, mm-hmm. a little bit because because he's trying to like you know be supportive of you know the fixing motorcycles and all that stuff. And also when he's like does the little thing with the little uh, teeter tottering panel thing, and he goes, "Come on, genius!" You know the way he says that, it's almost like a father, like a coy fatherly teasing. You know, mm-hmm. kind of like with that kind yeah. of tone of voice. Because my, my father does that to me all the time, and that's I'm in my thirties. <laughs> Really well, and and that's why I wish, I wish we had gotten what Alex asks for after seeing Alex's edit of um of uh, the car chase sequence from later. You know, and oh, yeah. it just your edit strengthens LaBeouf's character in that sequence because it mm. takes out jokes, takes yeah. out silly things. But if Indy and his relationship would be strengthened, I love the really quick. Oh, he's telling the kid, you know, oh, you know, don't go to college. It's fine. Don't you just do all this stuff. And then when he finds out he's his son, no, you have to send him back to school. He's my son. And immediately he's his dad. Hmm. And they yeah. do nothing. nothing with it. It's just yeah. a fun side. And I'm like, there's so much strength here just because Harrison is so good at being this character. Yeah. Like, and, you know. Even if they hadn't gone with the "oh look, he's," it turns out he's his son kind of uh, connection, like the you know the sudden coincidental familial connection that that some that gets into some films. Even the idea of Indy having a protege as a companion yeah. rather than because the first a spiritual three, son, an actual yeah. successor doesn't like Ray wasn't his daughter, but she no. feels like she's carrying it on anyway. She didn't have to take the name Skywalker anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but like you know the first the first three and all right, the first three two. An extent as a, a, you know they were almost following on the almost the james bond formula of right we need a female love interest as it were to like to tag along as uh, as indy puts it like and 
you know, we, we talked about this on the, Alex talked about this on the last crusade, like you have three variations on the female companion, mm. but we'd not had a project. We had short round, but he was more of a kind of a quirky comedy sidekick with the idea of actually someone that he could bring on and mentor and encourage like that, that alone would have been an interesting dynamic had they given it time, which they didn't. Yeah. Well, David Kep wrote this, and he uh, adapted Jurassic Park. Which, uh, considering how dense that book is, it, like I will always have a massive respect for that one time David Kep wrote something absolutely astonishing, one of my favourite films of all time. So I can't really condemn him for for writing a, a weak script in this case. It, it was kind of a. a a group effort to not really address the things that were like their producer and director and and you know Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy were there and they could have said maybe we should develop Mutt a little bit more but they didn't. I think that's the thing. I, this feels like certainly on this viewing it feels like a first draft rather yeah. than a developed film. Like simple things like um, when they've been down the the grave of the conquistadors and they come out and like they're surrounded by Soviets and Ray Winston's back is like hello Jonesy. Hello, Mac. And then it just fades unspectacularly to another um, red arrow map. We shall travel by map? Yeah. <laughs> that, that feels like you think that, that should have been almost the equivalent of the Belak outside the, tower, uh, the temple at the start of Raiders yeah. sort of scene. Like, there should have been a bit of back and forth there, but there's literally just, I'll oh, just throw in some dialogue and then just move on. Unfortunately. Like, like, why, why not flesh it out? Kep said in one of the interviews, you gotta, you know, you get handed this script and you've gotta like act like the first three films didn't happen. And I went, No, you don't, David. No. This is this is the fourth film in the series. You do the opposite of that. You pay very close attention to the development throughout those previous films, and you craft something that feels organic to that. Like starting from scratch is the is the, is not the direction to go in. And I don't know why Steve didn't say to him, uh, uh, no, David, uh, uh, make it feel like the others. <laughs> make it connect to the others. And they do, in a like, honestly, Karen Allen being there, just that mm. smile of hers I know. had what, so what, much mileage When they announced that she was me. coming back as Marion, I punched the air. I was yeah. so delighted because to me, Marion <laughs> was always the best of the indie girls. I genuinely She's not up against much, like though. The indie! And the Nazi who's dead. Oh, I, I genuinely didn't know she was coming back for this, oh. and I somehow missed the name Karen Allen in the script. Oh man! So fucking nervous about. It. So when she's back, I was like, I, that was such a great. That's one of the best moments of the film. It's like, yes, Marion's back. Hmm. Watching it this time, I was a little underwhelmed because obviously I know she's coming. It's like actually, like I was expecting like a, a good slap or something, like she does. Like when Mike I said that, I said she yeah. should slug him, and it just like everyone <laughs> like, would cheer. Yeah, belt him. This, I know there's a different animosity like this time because obviously they reconciled a lot of um, what happened between yeah. them like you know, in Raiders but this time round I don't know she she just looks that little bit too happy that little bit too casual like oh yeah here I am again in, in dire danger and hurtling through a jungle I know I know she had like you know this one experience in Raiders which is however many years set before this film so she's mm. had one adventure she's not completely new to the whole you know near death experiences yeah. and all that but I don't know she just seems to comfortable yeah and it doesn't quite earn that for me like and she yeah her smile is incredible it's wonderful to see her again it's like shouldn't you be a little bit more concerned i think they just remembered marion was capable which means she would not be going oh fuck we're gonna die 
Yeah, but Mar- Marion was capable, but Marion wasn't like, oh, you know, it's all right, we're definitely going to get out of this. She was still concerned. Yeah, yeah dear, the torch is running out. And also, yeah, like, she's not fond of snakes, and she's not fond of being covered in corpses. She's a human being. But she wasn't yeah. overly fond of being held captive. Yeah, I mean, ultimately... She was trying to escape, if I remember rightly. It's not Karen Allen's fault, but the fact that... No. There's one point in that... Uh, okay, right. Let me just rewind to something you mentioned before earlier, Chris. Uh, the, the jungle chase scene. Uh, I re-edited it this morning because uh, when we were watching it, I was like... Yeah, sometimes I do this where I'm like, I can feel the rhythm of another song in this. And obviously... Obviously, the jungle chase scene is directly um, uh, referencing the desert chase in Raiders. And I stuck ju- the, 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 that piece of John Williams' music on, and it was like, wow, I'm so much more gripped by what's going on because of the tension, tension, and just the movements of that. And... You know, it played fine while I was watching, but I went back and I actually directly edited it and made sure that the, the, the cuts fit with the actual movements of William's original piece, which it meant trimming out some of the... I don't want to say fat from the sequence, but it, like there, there's a bit where Shia LaBeouf... Is, well, there's a bit where Mark Williams, the character, is straddled between those two jeeps, and he's fighting Spalco, and then he gets hit in the nuts with a giant thistle, and then it happens like six more times... But when, like, from the rear shot, that's a stuntman actually between these two jeeps trying to, like, doing the the fighting. When you see Shia LaBeouf getting hit in the nuts, he's on a green screen. So you're seeing two completely different versions of the same moment. But if you trim out one of them and keep the music, like, just the momentum, that actually strengthens the scene. And... I found as I as I went through the edit that I didn't actually have to cut out cut out that much. Just a few bits, like you know the bit where um, Marion turns to Mutt, who's now sword fighting Spalco, doing this amazing Errol Flynn fencing. Like and, uh, they're both doing fantastically, and she's like repost, repost in a kind of a no one's going to die way. She's just sort of reminding you that the cars aren't moving; they're on a green screen. This is just a movie. Everybody have fun. But they never did that in the truck sequence. And just removing, just even, even though you couldn't actually hear any voices during this edit, just a few bits of those cutaways, I kept it so that every time Indy approached, it started going... And every time he looked at Mutt, there was this kind of fatherly, like, he's doing it, the kid's actually doing it way. And because you never got the goofiness... And because the music was going, oh my god, oh my god, Indy might die, it then translated to Mutt might die. And the actual struggle with Spalco with the sword, it really felt like Mutt was on the edge there. And I was like, mm. this is just so... Like, it's it's there. The bones of this scene are totally there. And unfortunately, the music that they play is... Um, John Williams' theme is called The Adventures of Mutt. And it is this twinkly-toed little sort of... Isn't it fun being Mutt type? Kind of Robin Hoody. Yeah, it's a little yeah. bit Robin Hood. And I compared it to, with Sharon to 100 Mile Dash by Michael Giacchino. And just I, I was playing the scene for her just on the iPad, uh, iPad without showing her what would have been going on on screen. Just the, the, the MP3. Just so you could hear 
the points of tension and that you knew when the kids would be like, oh my God, Dash is going to, Dash is falling, he's going to die. And then suddenly um, Dash runs out of land and he's on water. But then suddenly he realizes he can run across water. And then the kids laugh because even though he's really up against this with this deep bass, boom, 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 which represents these like flying, like blade razor thingies that are closing in on him, this little kid can hold his own. And it's like, that is a masterfully done scene that gets kids on board. That is my favourite track in that entire film. Yeah, like, it's great. That is a superb track. But yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly right. They're like the... The music, um, it just doesn't serve the scene, and much yeah. theme doesn't serve him. And I wonder, and, and I am not, I am not a music, musician. I am not musically minded. I'm just, I'm just a soundtrack nerd. You do a good job of it, uh, sounding like you are. Though. <laughs> well, I am sort of a musician and a soundtrack nerd. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> By all means, chip well, in as well. I wonder if it's because much theme tends to end on lower notes like so indiana jones's theme the heroic theme is hmm. dun 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 we're up high dun 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 okay that's down by dun 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 dun, dun. we're going higher and higher and higher much themes i'm going down every time we're doing something like down it's always yeah. going down more than it's going up and i oh, wonder God. if that's part of why it feels quite underwhelming as a heroic theme Kevin? I also apologize for my attempt. <laughs> I'll play the I real version. see where you're coming from on that, actually. Hmm. And also, it could symbolize maybe, like, that maybe Mutt has a lot more of an uphill battle to mm-hmm. be able to, uh, to go to to reach the, 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 the status of his dad, yeah. uh, of Indy as his father. You know, who knows? Yeah, ironically, at the point where they try, they try to, in this, in this jungle chase sequence, they try to give him this heroic moment musically hmm. is the monkey scene nah. not the monkey scene I can see how people the... would find that a bit naff but I still enjoy yeah, it yeah Kevin's yeah. pro monkey so yeah. can, can we hear pro and con monkey at this point regardless of, regardless I understand of... it's a bit naff but hey I still enjoyed it that's all I'm gonna say I know yeah. it's a half-hearted defense but hey the monkey has the same <laughs> haircut as him but when when he's with the, the naff monkeys mm. like hey Williams tries to do this really it, it's almost he's trying to do like an even more heroic version of the Indiana Jones theme it's like dun 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 dun, dun. It's like, and it doesn't it, it weirdly in my particularly when I say it out loud like that it sounds a little bit like the uh, Frozen 2 front where the mountains meet the sea it's like it's well actually to me it just sounds like, like and he's Tarzan swinging from a tree <laughs> It's not. It, it, the Indiana Jones is already one of the most heroic adventure themes mm. ever, mm. and then trying to shift it into another key to try and give it another gear, it actually does a disservice to mm. him, and therefore no. does a disservice to Mark and the Naff monkeys. <laughs> That's the, thing, the biggest, the biggest failing of that of that sequence for me, and I, I still lean on the side of Kevin in that it, it, it it's a lot of fun. It just the, the reason I don't like it, and the reason in, in now seeing Alex's cut of it where. We're not sure what's going to happen to Mutt. Mutt is locked away. Hmm. And then he is what emerges from the jungle really quick on a vine, which evokes Indiana Jones swinging with the whip. You know, it's very cool. Mm -hmm. He comes out of the jungle and none of that other bullshit is there. So he saves the day. It's such a wonderfully heroic moment. And maybe if the vine swinging was done with, like, Indy looking up and seeing him come by and being like, oh, wow, like, you know, he's doing something. But there's nothing gained by it other than a, like, little singular scene for Shia LaBeouf to have that, like, doesn't fit 
necessarily with everything else we've seen in the movie and it doesn't really have an indiana jones vibe to it either it's like you said it's just tarzan they'd have to be careful with how they did the vines the early and to mid 2000s they were obsessed with hanging with having cgi men swinging on a rope and it never looked like a man ever I believe you call that millennial rubber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, it is at least Shia LaBeouf. Uh, like, it, it's definitely him for most of the monkey swinging, even if the monkeys themselves probably aren't there. Although there were some real monkeys, I saw them in the behind-the-scenes stuff. Real monkeys it's confirmed. Just, it's just after they they struggled with that scene when this is the trilogy that that ultimately made man swinging on rope look really fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. That's right. yeah. We have a direct comparison to Mutt's theme in. The Force Awakens, Ray's theme that uh, uh, John mm. Williams came up with. Now, I saw a, quite a compelling video that uh, um, suggested that uh, Williams probably wasn't told much about Ray, so he left the theme very versatile so that he could like re like he could rejigger it with various other heroic themes if it turned out Ray was the daughter of so and so or the daughter of so and so. Um, and he like you can get the Force theme in there as well. Ray's theme is maybe my favourite John Williams theme. Possibly up like maybe Jurassic Park. I, I don't know. Ray's. Ugh. I think it's it might be. Top five. It's it's definitely like top three. Don't make me choose. But um, <laughs> Ray's theme was them going out of their way to go. This is the new hero, and she has a connection to the old. The. Pr- the the fact that Mutt did not have the faith of the film or the filmmakers in him to continue this legacy is exemplary in his theme not being linked with indies. It really doesn't connect. There's no elaboration on the indie. Like it, if they were like, this is going to be indie for the next generation, it would be... It would start like da 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 da, but then it would elaborate and go somewhere else, or or it would sort of feel like Indy's theme and then go somewhere like kind of more because he's more greaser. Like it would go somewhere a bit sort of mid twentieth century, more contemporary and less thirty serial. There's one character that we've barely talked about during the recording, and that is Ray Winstone as Mac. And the reasons why were twofold. One was uh, Ray Winstone in interviews. Uh, kept going on about how really complex this character was. Like, he's a secret agent, he's a double agent, he's a triple agent. I, I think he's forgotten what side he's working on. And I'm like, that's not actually complex if they don't explore it. And it's definitely not complex when you consider his actions, which are entirely self-serving. It doesn't make him complex. The complex version of Mac is Rudolf Abel, uh, Mark Rylance's character in Bridge of Spies. And we talk about that in the quick review. But the other reason we barely talked about Mac is because We Hate Movies did it already so superbly, I can do nothing better than to simply play you some highlights. Ray Winston does have a level 10 greed in this movie. Gold! Oh, I love me gold! Oh, my sweet, pretty, beautiful gold! Jonesy, leave so I can be naked with the gold! <laughs> But yeah, so and uh, yeah, it's it's just undercover blues syndrome, and it's just like oh, remember Tahiti when I was wearing a song? <laughs> you know what I found in Tahiti, Indy? Gold <laughs> and gonorrhea. <laughs> it was my gonorrhea summer. During the big uh, jeep chase, uh, Ray, you know, Indy's pissed off because Ray went so him. He's choking him. He's like, Indy. I- you're not listening to me. What I'm saying is it's like Berlin. 
Remember the adventure we had in Berlin? What were we? And they say it together. Double agents. Double agents. Also, right before that, he prefaces the whole thing with, Oh, I'm CIA! (laughs) Really? You're CIA too, you fucking pig. (laughs) I'm Culinary Institute of America. And I learned to cook some grilled cheese, I did. (laughs) And he's leaving these little uh, transmitters all over, so Kate Blanchett who barely can do anything in this movie, is just following them. Totally, yeah. He just leaves these little these little bleeping things behind. And it's like, you don't know who's doing it at first. So you're, you, like, anyone in the audience is like, who's betraying Indy's party? <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> it's so stupid. And so that's that makes it like, what, a triple cross, by the way? No, he, he, he says, says it in the end. He's like, what, what are you, a triple agent now? And he's like, no, I was just lying about being a dapu. Like, I was also lying about eating gold. Because I love gold. Oh, what a pretty little lie that was. <laughs> Me eating gold. He goes, yeah, they're in this temple and it's the city of gold. And he's like, oh, it's finally all me gold. He's like a boo in Aladdin. He's just like, <laughs> and he's just getting all these fucking pieces of gold. And, uh, you know, Harrison Ford runs back into the trophy room and he's like, hey, Abu, the lava's coming and the flying carpet's leaving. Let's get the fuck out of here. And this is where Mac takes on the role of Dr. Schneider from Last Crusade, that she's still reaching for that cup. Yep, totally. Indy, I'll be, and it's supposed to be like this touching, like, he's learned a lesson or something. He's like, I'll be all right. Like, no, you won't. You're going to get sucked into God knows what. I got, en- I got enough gold to pay the tolls I do. I'm sure this gold will be good in another dimension. Every atom in his body is about to die a painful separate death. Like, <laughs> you're finished. I'll be okay, Jonesy. Mac, if it comes down between you or the whip, I want the whip. <laughs> I don't want that. I don't have the space aliens using the whip. I would love it if he's like, come on, Jonesy, pull harder, you lazy Sal. Come on, Jonesy. And he goes, the name is Indiana. And fucking lets it go. Oh, yeah. No! <laughs> Um, okay, so let's talk about two big things about the film that we haven't really uh, mentioned before. Um, we'll start with nuking the fridge, which is something people talk and talk and talk the ass off. I don't think we actually need to talk about it for that long. Um, it, it also, it's become a film term akin to jumping the shark. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, your thoughts, for, uh, gentlemen. It, it's the bit prior to the fridge that really struck me this time round. Um, in the it's and I know it's I know it's purposefully fake that village like it's a test town isn't it it's yeah. very kind of it, it's, yeah. it's very Fallout yeah I was going to say um, Fallouty yeah oh yeah yeah it's it's very Fallout like and I, there's, there's something about the colouring of this entire film particular well, certainly these sections where I don't know, it just looks a little bit too pastely or the blue of the sky looks a little bit too unreal like but Indiana Jones in this 50s village and even to an extent the the scenes around kind of town looks literally out of place in the 50s like mm. he does not look like he belongs in this decade which in the opening of a film where you, you're expecting us to accept that Indiana Jones is, is still alive and operating in this decade is not a good Stars. So I kind of I ignored the fridge and I focused on the fact that he just looks so weirdly out of place. And I know it's a model village, but even just like visually, he just didn't feel right. The bit for me where it suddenly becomes an Indian from that point, 
the bit for me where it becomes an Indiana Jones film again is obviously the wonderful traveling by map sequence mm-hmm. and then seeing like Indy in leather jacket and hat and in this rustic South American market. It's like, right, now we're out of that real world and we're yeah. now back in the Indiana Jones world. And that just, the, the, the nuke the fridge scene really just wrapped that up for me this time. See, I, I've never disliked this scene. It's weird um, that I can say that because I've definitely been part of the, like, after the fact people that, like, you know, Joko are going to nuke the fridge and stuff. But I remember sitting in the theater seeing it the first time and it, for the exact reason James pointed out, because it is, it is 100% supposed to feel, I think. I don't think it's a mistake that it feels that way. Mm. Um, Supposed to feel very out of place. Like, you're supposed to go as an audience member. Something isn't right about any of this intentionally. But to me, it, it works as a as a horror sequence. It's it, and if the movie had played a little bit more in with, you know, they hint at the fact that Indy was there and brought in to look at the Roswell crash, and mm-hmm. he's been involved in stuff and never really shown what was going on. But the fact that he's put somewhere where it's like, as soon as he figures out what's going on, he immediately knows I'm I'm screwed. What the hell am I going to do to get out of this? Mm-hmm. It's one of the only times in the movie where I felt real tension. And we talk about, you know, Alex's edit of that chase sequence just took the, there's no humor in this sequence, right? Like this is, as an audience member, you go, oh my God, Indiana Jones is about to be in the middle of a nuclear bomb test. Like how, how does that happen? How does he fall in there? It, it, it's a 100% you're out of your element. And then the movie has to get you back into your element. I love that after this scene, we get some real Indiana Jones, like archaeology, archaeological, like tomb chasing kind of stuff, mm. which frankly, we don't get a ton of in the other movies. They're there. We get a yeah. lot of it in the compressed amount of time they do it in this. Mm. But the thing that I always really loved about nuking the fridge that I learned after by looking into it, it was it was actually the original form of time travel and back to the future. Yeah, I actually that? mentioned that there was an homage <laughs> to that. But yeah. glad we were on the same page there, Chris. And I don't know, the sequence, like, I know that, you know, just like James talked about with the aliens earlier, it's the fact that they're too upfront and in your face and things, but there is nothing, I watched it again this time expecting, okay, that's too out of this world. There is nothing any sillier about nuking the fridge than any of the stuff that happens in the other films. I think it's just that so much of that, the opening of this made you feel like you were in the real world instead of a fanciful world. Mm. That the minute we kind of went back into this, how could he ever survive that? It does come off silly, but I love it. Mm. That, that's my I'm take. I'm not disputing that, Chris. I, I, I'm pretty much in the same boat. I think what stands out for me most about this sequence is the... And it, it, it's actually nothing to do with how it narratively impacts on Indiana Jones. It's it's just to do with what it evokes for me. And that's how much it brings Indy up to modern day. Mm-hmm. Like, like, he's not he's not quite there. Obviously, it's still the 50s. But it's it's on that cusp of about to turn into things that I know and am familiar with. That shadow of the bomb, that mm-hmm. nuclear fear, that carried on for decades. And I was born and was around in the, in tail, the tail end, end of, of it. it yeah. So it, it kind of creates this weird little Venn diagram between the Nazi stuff that was happening way, way back in the 30s and the, okay, so this is this is 
very close to being now or at least tackling the or dealing with the fears and the shadows that I'm a little bit more familiar with. So A, it made me feel feckin' old um, <laughs> and B, it, it kind of made the concept of Indiana Jones as a character feel very, very timeless and, and sort of gave a sense of almost immortality to him. Spielberg was born in uh, 1946, which means that in 1957 he'd have been 11 years old, so like a kid with a baseball cap on at that point. So he that this American town, yeah, he stayed. He always wears. He a stayed cap. a kid with a baseball <laughs> cap. So basically, he crystallised at that age. Did that word again? What he's doing, playfully though it is, and punctuated with that friggin' gopher again, is saying. <laughs> This shadow, this bomb, when Indy walks up the hill, which is, again, another fantastic shot, even though so much of that uh, nuclear effect is, is digital because, thankfully, they didn't actually set off a real nuclear blast and do it all in camera. But the, oh, the shot is bone-chilling. And I, I think I don't need things quantified mathematically, precisely, or physically and medically accurate in my sci-fi fantasy. I feel like elements of this movie got hyper-focused on early during an era when being performatively angry on YouTube in particular and expressing betrayal with the current output of the creators of your childhood favourites was becoming an addictive trend that is still going strong. I tore into the Star Wars prequels in 2010 at the beginning of my movie podcasting career myself right before moving on to talking about how much I loved the original trilogy. So... When I say performatively angry, I don't mean that people weren't actually angry. I feel like if you overemphasize that anger, then there's a catharsis for your viewers. So I feel like you could the, the nuke in the fridge was a rallying point, and people could point to how it doesn't make any medical sense, and it doesn't make any physical sense, and it uh, you know Indy would be destroyed. And um, as, as you say, like um, there's plenty of things that happened to Indy in previous films, just Indy, and not even accounting for every other person who ever does a stunt in any other film, which would just straight up kill him. Just You know when he cuts the, the rope bridge, and then mm -hmm. everyone on the bridge like topples into the water, but he holds on, and then... Like, imagine the fulcrum. Imagine the gathered momentum of slamming into the side of that cliff as Indy. I, 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 I it's think the classic is the submarine. Has he held onto a submarine underwater for that? I long? said exactly yeah. that. The U boat. Yeah. Like, but people don't question it. They questioned it because there were other things wrong with the movie, and you can point at that and go, there. This is bollocks, so the rest of the movie is bollocks. And you can then talk about that for ages. Ultimately, it doesn't really make that much physical sense. It, it does seem like it's something that would actually break his bones and probably kill him and they could have helped it by perhaps having other debris land around the fridge so it feels like the blast itself wasn't propelling him too far just far enough away from ground zero and maybe that ground zero happened further away from the fridge because the fridge is on its own you know and it just goes boingy boingy bouncy bouncy spinny 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 <laughs> just 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 tone that down have it like cr crash and slide rather than bouncing and then as he gets out have him like oh shit and like limping the way he's like ah, ah, wait i don't need help I'm not the man I knew ten years ago. 
In, in Regis of the Lost Ark. Like, he got way more fucked up in the uh, truck chase in Raiders than he did here. So if they'd just retained that and have him walking up... The problem is, visually, if he does that, if you're going, well, we're going to go with physics here, then it's like, oh, he's being covered in wave after wave of radiation and Indiana Jones is dying, which means that in the next scene, why is he fine? Oh, he's being showered yeah. off. So there's almost no way they could really do this properly. But when it really comes down to it, what Steve wanted, and I think this was something that, that surpassed what George wanted, was to show us the shadow of that bomb, just to establish the era in a way where it's like, yay, hot rod cars. But then the bomb, the actual threat that the Cold War represented. And I feel that the failing of not making the Soviets all that dangerous is... There was no particular link between mutually assured destruction and what was happening with the Crystal Skull. There was no Iron Giant level of, we can duck and cover, it doesn't matter. There was no sense of nuclear threat that will kill us all and that the skull might be the tipping point. That, and I just thought of this on the spot, that would actually have really justified that shadow of the bomb thing. That would have really made it feel thematically resonant throughout, and you'd have been like, Indy is trying to stop us all dying. This in, this matters. In Raiders, they keep going on about... Um, so the Nazis keep going on about how they're going to use the, the Ark to help the Fuhrer, how it's going to help the war, how it's going to give them the power to, to win. And that's never... I think there's one monologue from um, Spalco in a tent about how we were going to have the ability to control the minds of the world. But that is it. That is the only time you ever hear what their plan for the skull is. Other than that, it's just its just a thing. It's just a MacGuffin. Yeah. Quick, we need it. Someone should have told her, you don't need a crystal skull. You just need Facebook, Reddit, <laughs> right. YouTube, oh, Twitter. Yeah, I was actually going to say something to that effect. Too, <laughs> I, thought that, I felt Kate Blanchard's delivery in that scene was pretty chilling, actually. Oh, like, yeah. Wow, She's great relevant. in this. Oh, oh yeah. She is a compelling so like presence this time, in this yeah. movie. For all the failings of uh, characterizing the Russians, she is on point, like, all the time. Yeah. And she's amazing. One thing I really, really like about Spalco is, the, and the costume designer even mentioned this, mentions this in the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, mm -hmm. they took pains to put keep her in pants throughout the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And I like that because, in a way, she's quite literally wearing the pants amongst the Russians, mm. and she's the uh, one calling shots. Hero of socialist labor. I love her accent. Oh, yes. yeah. I love it, too. In fact, she also uh, she also came up with the idea to have her have that kind of flapper bob haircut as well. Mm. Oh, yeah, she looked through Russian yearbooks from that year f to look for what girls had, and, and the idea of just having a fringe down there so that you could always see her eyes, like Marlena Dietrich. Oh, yeah. The point from earlier about how there's no real weight to what's going on with the aliens is mm. exactly that, right? You, you, you hit the point on the head. The arc... They're looking for it for a particular reason. The um, Holy Grail, they're looking for it for a particular reason. And this, what's the end game of bringing it back? You know, mm. she wants knowledge, but it's all very MacGuffin-y. They did try to mirror the shot of that nuke going off with the shot of the um, flying saucer taking off. It's a, a very similarly staged with Indy looking up from the cliff. And it has that, like, 
otherworldly, like bigger than you can take in. Like we're moving this movie forward into a future kind of thing, but it doesn't evoke anything other than awe. There's no fear to it. I, you know, I don't feel like the aliens are going to destroy the world. It seems like they came, taught us how to farm, and we're just waiting to go somewhere else. Thanks for bringing our skull back. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Which and, is and better than most. Of the, better, you know, if you think about it, you know. You know, I, being I, a little benevolent. You know. I agree. It just there, the movie doesn't do any work to make you think that's where it's going to go. There's mm-hmm. n- and and I don't. It doesn't ruin the movie for me. I still have a blast. It's just that point of it seeming first drafty really comes back because I had heard a, a, a friend of mine always called this movie lazy, and I don't think there's a single movie in Spielberg's entire canon, even the ones that I would consider lesser films, that ever feel lazy. Lazy would say that they're not well made. There are no poorly made Spielberg films. There's Spielberg films that don't have good scripts. There's Spielberg Spielberg films that make bad decisions, but mm. they're never lazy. This film is technically a beautifully made film. Everyone's I trying, agree. everything's looking on a thousand percent. But maybe with some editing, which Alex has shown us with that chase sequence, with some script rewrites, um, I, I point specifically to the the Indiana Jones is afraid of snakes moment in this mm. movie. Mm-hmm. Does, oh, does everyone remember this? Yeah, Shia yeah. yeah. I, I remember laughing at it when they, when I saw it in the theater, but seeing it again, I kind of I, it, it felt kind of cringy. So. Yeah. It annoys because it's like you just pulled Karen Allen out with the snake. She didn't note it once. Whatever. Then you throw the same snake to Indy, and then we have this big mental breakdown. It's a very cute moment with Indy. <laughs> Just call it a rope. Just call it a rope. I love it. But it's like, why not have it be okay? Shia LaBeouf came over with a rope, throws it to Karen Allen. Then she gets out, then he reaches back, and we show that instead of grabbing the rope, he grabs a snake off the tree and doesn't try to talk it away like, yeah, of course it's a snake. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's like, to me, that would be, why would we do this? Yeah, it just it's like it doesn't make any damn sense why someone would do it. The movie fails, I feel, in a forgivable way by peppering proceedings with goofy moments. The gopher, the monkeys, the fridge flying in the face of reality. Just a bit too much green screen being less violent and less gory than the originals to adjust to the changing times of family fare. Like, you see hardly any blood in this thing. Like, there's a, li- there's a few spots of it on the backs of some of the tribal people who are murdered by the Soviets off-camera, off-screen. And... Indy noticeably not ending up as battered, bruised, broken, exhausted and haggard as before because now he has a son to take all the beatings for him. But Mutt's pretty fun at the end too. Where it fails on a more pronounced way, I feel, is a lack of rich character development or interaction. Now, obviously, we started this series just doing throwbacks. So in Raiders, throwbacks to adventure serials in the 30s. So it didn't have to be all that deep. And I was worried when we were doing Raiders, like, what have we got to talk about? As it turned out, loads. Thank you, Kevin, for helping us with that. But you're very welcome. If you're going to adjust the violence to the changing times, and you also can't beat up Harrison Ford as much as you used to, you should also take the opportunity to evolve the drama in line with your contemporaries. Remember all those blockbusters that I mentioned that came out the same year Hellboy 2 The Golden Army is a magnificent Indiana Jones style movie in a universe which by the way manages to balance 
religious arcana and space monsters. So like like Hellboy himself is the son of Satan and also the son of this giant space octopus squid that's going to try and eat the world. So but again, as you said James, they did that from Jump Street, like they, they from the very beginning. So there is some validity in introducing aliens a little bit late in the game and that being too abrupt and about turn for the series. But maybe we should start seeing this as less the last Indiana Jones where they suddenly introduced this out of nowhere and more just a film that moved the series forward. So remember what I said about um, the, the the lack of that scene where I thought I'd lost your boy um, with Indian Mutt himself, that, that, that lack of a real bonding moment. Instead, it's all plot movement. We are ferrying the MacGuffin and they know what a MacGuffin is. Like they, they talked about the Ark of the Covenant as a MacGuffin back in 1981. They were ferrying the MacGuffin from where it shouldn't be to where it should be and engaging in hijinks along the way. And a lot of it has proved to be enjoyable for many of us. And that is absolutely fine. Just going from A to Z. But we all probably sensed that it could have been more even if we like the movie a lot even if we're like I don't understand why everyone hates it so much it's hard to deny that there is more that this film could have been less of a desperation to keep the Soviets off of this source of knowledge and more of a curiosity regarding what it all means a curiosity that doesn't really ever get satisfied I don't need this stuff explained to me. I don't need things quantified and mathematically precise or physically and medically accurate in my sci-fantasy. But I do like mythology and I do like talking about the strange things we're about to see before we see them. That's Hitchcockian delayed delivery of expectation. I don't understand why Mac gets so much screen time or so much trust from Indy. We haven't talked about him, (laughs) but from the very first scene in Raiders, Indy was being betrayed by dudes who don't live to profit from it. I guess you could say that Mac and Indy have a long history which warranted his forgiveness and an uneasy acceptance, but considering how easily and how repeatedly this guy will shop in his friends in the space of about five days, I have to wonder how many times he may have done that in the past with Indy. It's like I said this to you the other day, um, James, he's Benny in The Mummy. Like mm-hmm. He's like, well, I'm out of here. But in The Mummy, Benny betrays Rick once at the beginning and then keeps trying to betray him later, but Rick's like, okay, hi, Benny. How's it going? You're about to betray me. I'm not going to trust you one little bit. Indy keeps trusting Mac. And there's like, there's a point near the end where Mac's like, oh, what a waste of my time. I'll come in. I wanted Indy to march across the screen and go nose to nose with Ray Winstone and go, whenever you want to leave, you have my permission. So, like, why are you here? And then it turns out he's just there for treasure. I feel like the, some of this uh, was cribbed a bit from the mummy movies, like those big red ants and everything, and basically how they deal with that big Russian dude. I mean, oh my yeah, god, they're like that's the terrifying. That's a bit yeah. terrifying seeing the ants crawl into his mouth. Yeah, that's Jesus. a good moment actually. That guy, that guy I, is I standing like it, for yeah, Pat Roach. It feels but... like it's cribbed a bit from the mummy movies. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, that, that, that Spielberg, yeah. especially mummy. when they drag him down into the big old ant hill. Yeah, and, yeah. And everything. I'm like, holy shit. 
Um, I don't know whether the third Mummy movie had come out, but I don't even really consider it a trilogy. The first Mummy movie is definitely a really strong contender for being better than the weaker Indiana Jones films. It's a, it's a, it's a yep. great movie. It's got its own weaknesses and, and goofinesses as well. Um, and there's that bit where Rick's like fighting a bunch of invisible dudes, and you're like, well, those are, those guys aren't really there. And he goes, mummies. But even the mummy returns, and I said this to James as well, has that moment where Evie gets murdered, and it's really sad. And like the mummy returns is regarded as just popcorn toss, but there isn't a moment like that in this movie. There's no real moment of, of sadness and, uh, and loss. Uh, the, the closest we actually get is Shia LaBeouf's best bit of acting when they go into uh, Ox's old cell and he sees yeah. all of these scrawlings on the wall and Shia LaBeouf starts to cry because he cares about Ox so much and at that point I was like oh, okay, I, I kind of like this kid. You know, it's, it's, and he even pats him on the shoulder like it's going to be okay kid, we'll yeah. find him. That, I that's, like that. That's nice and um, I, I feel like it's it's a very cuddly movie, especially once they get the family together. It's 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 kind of uh, it's keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, I mean they had that. <laughs> there was definitely that feeling in um, Last Crusade, and then Henry Senior gets shot in the gut. Right, and it nothing and that all bets are off at this point like Henry Senior could die like we nearly lost Indy but we probably aren't going to lose Indy and we aren't going to believe that Indiana Jones is going to die just before the the middle of the third act of the third Indiana Jones film but his father might die and that whole thing about like giving you a surprise you know ooh, he's his son like if you watch it the second time you're like well he's his son there's all this stuff they could be saying to each other it would have been better if Mutt knew you know and, and like Indy doesn't know why Mutt's pissed off all the time and then Indy finds out later and then there's a moment and and he's like oh okay and rather than sort of like that recrimination surrounded by Soviets and it's like a big like like big shouty well this is what families do they shout at each other thing it's like I have a son and but rather than turning around and going and you didn't tell me I had a right to know it's like you know it should be in like that should change Indy's world but it shouldn't at that point resolve the tension between them that would need to come at the end when it feels like one of them's gonna die and the other one gets suddenly very worried and then you can get that reconciliation and like Muck can be like I forgive you for not being there I know you didn't know but at the same time I've been resenting you my whole life you've been off doing all of this stuff and I always felt less important than that and it's not fair for me to but you know well, just no, something no. Doesn't he say that he believed that Co- whoever the hell Colin was, that he thought Cal- Colin was his father, and then Marion's like, no, Colin was your stepfather, Indy is your father. Like, they, they even, they remove that. Yeah, they resolve it in a line. Yeah. Well, thank God for the doobly-doo. Yeah. It, it would make much more sense for him to have, for Mutt to have known from early on. And I actually, before we got to the reveal, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious anyway Mm. so before it actually got to the reveal I assumed that that would have been the case he calls himself Mutt which suggests he has it in his head that like you were named after the dog well no well yeah there is that but (laughs) but the idea that all of these different men had different levels of input with Oxley as well yeah and and how he came to be who he is that Mm. he's sort of 
bits of people that he's struggled to connect with and, and really make sense of who he is. And mm. that would really have played into how he interacts with uh, with Indy and um, how he interacts with his mother for, you know, what information she's given him and what she yeah. hasn't. And uh, It's cool. We've, yeah. we've, we've made this point yeah. very thoroughly. It, so. it, does, it does make a nice parallel, though, with the fact that, you know, Indy was estranged from his father until the events of Last Crusade, mm-hmm. you know, and all that. And, you know, Marcus Brody basically was kind of his father figure, kind of like Oxley was the father figure to uh, Mutt. So, all these I mean, pieces are right parallel. there. Yeah. Have him... think that I thought you said he was a teacher line hold a lot more weight, too. Mm-hmm. When, because that could have been the lie, you know, your, your dad, Indy, you know, he's just a professor. That would add into Mutt's hatred of school mm-hmm. and wanting to do yeah. the physical stuff, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. It would have just held so much more weight than like him going, "Oh, this is just some old guy." And it would have it would have helped to have him turn up with some expectation. If if Marion had sent him to find his dad, with it in his mind that you know he's going to turn up and he's going to save the day and everything's going to be fantastic, and then have things go wrong and have that disappointment be something that they have to resolve. John hurts Oxley could definitely have played the part of the wise old man, since we didn't have Connery or Denham Elliott or John Rhys Davis, and the man had such dignity and grace, and such a magnificent voice and elegant delivery that the... That posh, gravelly voice of his, yeah. Absolutely, the wizard who could put things in perspective. You know when Denham Elliott says, Marion's the least of your worries right now, believe me, Indy. What do you mean? Well, I mean that for nearly 3,000 years, man has been searching for the last ark. That's something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've ever gone after before. It's important that adventurers have elders. An old man who's a little bit closer to God and sort of like touched the unknown a bit more than Indian. You sound like my father. You're talking about the boogeyman. You need that wizard figure and he doesn't get to say much. Um, And it just feels kind of absent while he's playing with his stick and clutching at a sack. And like I said, the best moment for Oxley is actually that bit where Mutt cries over Oxley. Because it makes us feel his character more acutely than anything he's a- that John Hurt was actually able to do on screen until going, oh, I'm fine now. It's a dimensional beings in point of fact. What does that mean? Doesn't matter. Moving on. <laughs> and I'm all to another dimension. <laughs> it's all yeah. wibbly wobbly timey wimey. I'm looking for the doctor. <laughs> well, you certainly came to the right place. Now I know for oh, clang clang clang. Now I know for sure that Karen Allen was surprised that she got more than a cameo. Like she apparently Steve phoned her up and, and was like, I guess you know why I'm calling you. And she's like, um, I, I don't know. And and uh, he said, Well, I'd like you to be in the next Indiana Jones movie. And she was expecting to like turn up at the end. She did not expect to be along for the ride. I think that's why she's just got this big grin on her face the whole time going, I get to do this stuff again. It's awesome. It, I, I don't I blame her. Love I really that. Don't. Again, for very personal reasons, Karen Allen looks a bit like my mum. Who loves Starman. Who, yeah. (laughs) But it it means that whenever I see her, I'm like, there's this little bit in the back of my mind that goes, oh, mum, I'm Mm. glad you look so happy. (laughs) So, yeah, it feels like she's, everything about her comes from a very natural place. When she turns up and puts her hands on her hips and goes, Indiana Jones, it's deliberately putting you back to that place and uh, although a a lot of people really didn't like the marriage to uh, Henry 
at the end, it's deeply satisfying to me considering how much that I loved seeing these two together in Raiders since I was a nipper. Like, I saw Raiders when I was very, very young. I so. agree. My, my mom and I both kind of smiled at that moment. And also yeah. that moment where that little exchange where they had where uh, Marion says, like, like you must have had more women than me since I was since you left me. And she's like, yeah, there were a few, but there was only one problem. He's like, what was that? They, they weren't, weren't you. you. That's lovely. Yeah. My mom actually it, audibly went, aw, at that moment. <laughs> the damn good line. Uh, okay. Final point, and it's a good one. Honestly, at the end of all this, I just had to ask one single question of myself while watching the movie. Does Harrison Ford feel like Indiana Jones? And as we have established on this podcast, the answer in this is yes. Now, when we saw him in 1981, he was gruff and determined. In 1984, he was a little more romantic, but even a little contemptuous, almost greedy, even though he did the right thing in the end. In 1989, he was conflicted and tense and sometimes quite fiercely angry, but ultimately he found a measure of peace in adulthood. And the follow-up to that is what I saw here. If David Kep didn't necessarily get it, Harrison Ford did get it. A man not desperately running to or desperately running from anything. Older, wiser, a believer in the magical now, concerned for his loved ones, respected as a teacher of seniority. The dramatic framework of the film does not allow for Indy to play a father, but thankfully Ford incorporated those qualities all the same. And for that, I am grateful for this glimpse into Indy's later life. think this is a lot less of a disappointment than it is for some people because I didn't have that many expectations. I, I ultimately, I enjoy Indiana Jones movies, but I don't have as much invested in them as most of the core audience does. So I was able to, I suppose, just filter out some of the bits that, that were less appealing and enjoy what was in there. And I would certainly say that this viewing kind of reinforced that because I was looking for the positive and I think I, I found it for the most part. There's not a lot of depth really, but there's, there is elements of it where you can look for it and, and find more there. Excavate a little, if you will. Mm. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, I think Chris is right. The, uh, the, there's a lot more bones within it that could have been developed into something more emotionally engaging and less we need 
frantic chases and swinging through trees and, and stuff that just feels like it's there as visual flair to keep people engaged. Mm. You know how I feel about visual flair to keep people engaged. You've heard what I have to say about Transformers. <laughs> I don't really yep. appreciate it. Mm. But I do feel like if you took all of those bits out, you'd have a much shorter movie. But what would be what was left would be a lot more engaging and um, and a lot more uh, emotionally riveting. So it's not that that stuff isn't there. And I think actually it's summed up quite well. With I think what, you're challenging me to make an edit I, I and then send I it might. to James. Well, <laughs> I think what, what you did with the with the car chase scene kind of summed it up. It wasn't just the music switch out. It was the fact that you removed the 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 little sections and, and collections of frames that dissipated the tension that mm. was being built and I think if you got rid of those bits, the, the parts that dissipate what has been built up for the sake of a joke, for the sake of let's not let people take their eyes off the screen um, I, I think there is a good solid core there, I just think there is too much chaff around the edges Taking Sharon up on this challenge, I actually did go and make a edit of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Let me tell you what I took out. At the beginning, when the gopher pops out of the little molehill, I trimmed it so we see the molehill, we hear the gopher, but it doesn't actually emerge. The car runs over the molehill far too fast. It's quite amazing how easily that gopher lifts out. Remember James mentioned that he didn't like the floating gunpowder? Well, one of these challenges was make a version that James kind of likes. So when Indy says, I need your bullets, he only uses the ball bearings and uses the compass that he mentions to find roughly where the alien remains are in the warehouse. This way we don't get the Harry Potter magic floating gunpowder. When Indy's making the land speed record on that rocket sled, got rid of the goofy gophers that look at him as he goes past. I'm not mentioning every cut, just the ones that I think you'll go, ah, about. The fridge. All I had to do here was just cut out about seven seconds of this thing bouncing end over end and spiraling and hitting the ground over and over. If it just gets flung over the top of the car, sails far, but then lands in a relatively smooth but abrupt stop and Indy comes out, it is believable that he could have survived that because we don't get the pinwheeling impacts. And then you take the gopher away. This is probably the messiest cut of the film because there's no shot of him getting up that doesn't have a CGI gopher in it. So the editing was kind of choppy in a way that Michael Kahn never stands for. So it sticks out from the rest of the film. But Indy does walk up the hill towards the mushroom cloud after the fridge incident. So you get that impact too. After that, there is a huge chunk of the movie that didn't need anything taking out of. All of Indy being at the college, the wonderful Jim Broadbent, him meeting Mutt for the first time, the little motorcycle escapade, everything before they get to Peru, that's fine. Just leave it. Let him do his thing. I took out the Cossack dancing at the Russian camp because it's kind of, I don't know, racial stereotyping. It feels like the Zangief ending in Street Fighter 2. We don't need it. Get rid of that. The dry sand, quicksand bit, this one I was very proud of. If you just trim out all the lines that dissipate the tension, like when Indy starts going, actually it's a dry sand, which is slightly different to quicksand. It depends on the viscosity. It's like you take that out and they start to sink. Mutt leaves to get help much quicker, as does Oxley. And when Marion tells Indy when he's up to his waist in sand, he's your son. 
I played that little ding from Last Crusade, just tying it together with Henry Senior, making it more of a revelation. Like if they wanted this to be a reveal, that's what you need, a musical flourish. Once again, really the greatest failing of this is the lack of emotional investment between Indy and Mutt. Then when Indy gets thrown the snake, I just cut out all of his overt panicking and have him grab the hold of the snake but look really like he doesn't want to be there. That feels more in keeping with Raiders. Like, we know he hates that that's a snake, but we don't have to have the argument about it. I went back to the jungle chase, didn't swap out the music because obviously then you lose all the sound effects and all the speech. But I did make a lot of those same edits again just to keep it tighter, pacier. All of those moments when it's like, ah, no one's in real danger, get rid of them. Unfortunately, most of the monkeys got cut out, so Kevin wouldn't love this version. But the jungle chase is now much tighter. It's much more, oh my god. And one of the key things is that Mutt and Indy don't bicker with each other. They actually seem kind of supportive. So there's conflict and there's tension, but it's not just, why couldn't you have been better at doing the thing? And to that end, I found myself warming to Mutt more. When Arena grabs the skull, I play a little jangle from Temple of Doom, just to get that in there, plus some drama. And Mutt doesn't get hit in the nuts over and over again with giant thistles. It feels a lot more in camera, and all of the clearly digital shots, just trim them out. You know, just shorten the chase by maybe a minute, if that, but it makes it feel so much more physical. The bit where they go over the waterfall, I cut the four times, not three. They go over three waterfalls, but they also go over a cliff beforehand. It's too many. Too much. Whoa! Like, it's, it's a ride at Hollywood Studios. We don't need that much. So they go over the cliff because I've got to get them down there. And then the first waterfall they come to is absolutely massive. And because there's this big rushing sound of water, it's seamless the way they go from the top to the bottom. Because the thing is, once they've survived one drop and then another drop, you're like, oh, I, I guess there'll be another. Yep, there was. Oh, and a fourth. Mm-mm, yep, okay. One of the most significant changes, the tribal people are not there. They go through those ruins, they find torches, they don't talk about the fact that they've been recently lit, the tribal people do not turn up, they do not run away from the skull, and they do not get massacred by the Soviets. It is effectively abandoned, suggesting the conquistadors already wiped them out, because they did. When they get to the treasure house and Max starts going like a boo, I played a little bit of the arc theme just to give you that tingle down your spine, that, that memory of Indiana Jones being, ooh, treasure rooms, but you shouldn't be in here. Mac doesn't say he's gonna be all right, he just gets sucked into the cosmos. This last bit was really difficult to reframe. Spalco meets the owners of the Crystal Skull, but as they start to form into a sort of a crystalline humanoid, we cut away and we never see what she is looking at. And let me tell you folks, when you can't see it and you just see her, oh God, no, too much, overreaction, and then her eyes burn out of her head, that is terrifying in a way that evokes the Ark of the Covenant. And I removed the bit where Oxley says, 
interdimensional beings in point of fact. And after he says, a portal, I got rid of to another dimension. Just let them be aliens, or not. But don't just explain it in a line. It's actually better if you don't. And that's it. It actually only ended up about 12 minutes shorter than the original theatrical cut. I didn't have to take out that much. And the rest of it is a really solid Indiana Jones adventure. It's missing that dramatic reconciliation between Mutt and Indy because I can't put in something that was never filmed. But it also isn't held back by those little annoyances. And since those annoyances were the things people kept mentioning over and over again, it does make me wonder what if this version came out in 2008, what people would have made of it. For my part, now that I've seen what I'm calling the classic cut of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, this version of it, it's head and shoulders above Temple of Doom for me. Principally because, as we mentioned on the show, Indy doesn't really learn or grow in any way in Temple of Doom, and I'm all about character development and interaction. I still find Temple fun and exciting, and there's some great lines in there, like, fortune and glory, kid. It's basically the ideal place to start with Indy because he's kind of a prick, and it's all uphill from here. The key to this series is personal relationships. Raiders Marion dredges up a lot of old feelings for him. So the whole way through, while he's just chasing the Ark, he's going through a load of stuff, and Marion's going through a load of stuff. Then in Last Crusade, full-on personal relationship. This was Spielberg going, you know, this could be so much more. And it was. That's why it's my favourite. Crystal Skull, while falling short on almost every count when compared to films one and three, is still a very personal journey for Indiana Jones. He starts off an old man for whom life is taking things away, and he ends it with a 20-year-old son and a wife he's had an on-off relationship with throughout his life. Temple of Doom, he just seems irritated by Willy, and she by him. Honestly, I think the biggest arbiter of love in Temple of Doom is Shorty, who clearly looks up to Indiana and clearly wants to be him when he grows up. So it does have that going for it. And I'm just like, racism! (laughs) (laughs) Then again, do you really want to put people off Indiana Jones before they've even really got to the meaty stuff? So maybe, yeah, start with Raiders no matter what. If you've enjoyed hearing about this version of the movie, I'm considering writing a book about the many, many edits I've done on loads of different films over the years. What I've found through exploration, excavation, kind of cinematic archaeology, and reshaping them using my own sensibilities. Often in the way that would make the original directors ever fit. And since we're going to get the Snyder Cut soon, and the Godfather 3 good version... Kind of feels like the right time for me to write a whole book about movies that can be transformed if you just take out or tweak certain elements of them. And obviously, I know there are people listening going, oh God, I wish I could see that version. Unfortunately, I can't share any of these beyond talking about them with anyone. And I know people get stroppy with me on YouTube and they're like, well, that's part of the fan edit community. Bottom line is, I don't want to piss off the studios, but I do want to talk about my findings. Inspired by the despecialized editions, I made these kind of hybrid versions of the Star Wars movies, which contain some of the stuff that's really good, but removed other of the stuff like Han shooting first. I completely re-edited the Hobbit trilogy into two parts, three parts, and four parts, just to see how it could have been really good. And honestly, the results might surprise you. 
So if you do want to know about the Star Wars Trilogy Respecialized Edition, The Hobbit King Under the Mountain, Passengers The Awoken Cut, Bad Boys 2 Good Boys, Spider-Man 3 Anti-Venom, Wonder Woman Dawn of Justice, Pirates of the Caribbean Farewell to Brethren, Transformers Rollout, Wolverine, Willy Wonka, It Chapter 2 Losers Edition, Doctor Sleep Abra Edition, Birds of Prey Harley Edition, Superman The Complete Saga, Daredevil The Final Cut, 2001 Exogenesis Edition, Marvel Remastered, Sin City The Kindest Cut of All, Wild Wild West Bearable Edition, The Dark Knight Rises Again, Yes Madam Lightning Cut, Kick-Ass Kick-Butt Edition, The Avengers Extended Edition, and Peanuts Reshelled, they would be what I would talk about in this thing. So if you would read that book, let me know. As with all three of the other Indiana Jones podcasts, this one overran, so if you would like to listen to the other 30 minutes, you can find it on our Patreon, on the bonus feed for everyone on the $5 or higher tier. And a special shout-out to our top-tier backers every week. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Alex Peregrine, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Dan Hepner, Daniel Salguero, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Trey Contreras, and Tom Painter. Where will you go? Train to New York. Overnight to London for starts. Might end up teaching in Leipzig. Heinrich owes me a favor. I'll wire you when I get settled. You can send on the rest of my things. I suppose there's nothing to keep you here. I barely recognize this country anymore. The government's got us seeing communists in our soup. When the hysteria reaches academia, I guess it's time to call it a career. Brutal couple of years, huh, Charlie? First dad. And Marcus seem to have reached the age where life stops giving us things and starts taking them away. Just another half glass. We recorded this show before the passing of Sean Connery, whose presence will always be felt in this series. The other thing is that I don't think this is the end of Indiana Jones. Um, I think he's going to, you know, it's, it's now owned by Disney and they're not known for letting their properties just lie. Uh, Never let a, let a good IP go to waste. We're, we're probably not going to yeah. see a sequel to um, Songs of the South anytime soon, but... Mm. Thank God for that. <laughs> I feel like they've 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 done their Star Wars. Uh, uh, they've had their stint at Star Wars. They've made their mistakes. They might learn from their mistakes, and uh, they'll have a go at the uh, other big LucasArts property at some point in the future. Well, there's, there's frequent rumours that there is a fifth Indiana Jones. I think it's mm. even listed like on IMDb, like oh, yeah. fifth Indiana Jones is in pre-production. And I think, and, and I'm and now without COVID, like, it would have been a lot easier to get to happen. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm actually excited for the idea of another a fifth ending young Jones mm. because as we've said like for the last two hours like Harrison Ford can absolutely deliver oh, and I think they have learned enough lessons in terms of how to deliver a story like Force Awakens like whatever where it passes the mantle mm. and I would happily watch one where it passes the mantle mm. I think and I'd, I'd, I'd like I'd like a more positive uh, or a more, or a film I enjoy more as the finale for the trilogy, uh, for the finale for the series for me. <laughs> Freudian slip there. The finale for the trilogy. Before we go, gentlemen, where can folks find your stuff? Um, you can find me Bond and Beyond, a semi-regular James Bond podcast, getting slightly more regular as we get more excited about No Time to Die. That's <laughs> at uh, BondBeyondPod tumblr.com or on all good podcasting platforms i run a little blog non-violent game of the day that's nvgotd.tumblr.com it's just a little recommendation for a game that doesn't involve killing all of the things <laughs> and i have published my debut novella wandless um, it is an <gasps> urban fantasy thriller it is about a, a, a wizard, harry potter style wizarding world that's a little bit darker or i like to think it's a little bit darker where magic is not a gift it's a life sentence um a woman is escaping from the military at the very beginning of the novel she's trying to get out of the country get to safety away from all of those who are discriminating and oppressing her um but the powers are not the threat that she poses to them you can find more at wanderlust.co.uk nicely done sounds intriguing yeah yeah I've, I've read it it's good you should check it out folks chris where can people find your stuff hey everybody um again thank you guys for having me on yet again i will talk spielberg and indiana jones any day and mm. uh i'm really glad to get together with this whole crew because kevin is a frequent um uh, friend and guy on my stuff and james it's great to talk to you again and alex and sharon it's always wonderful uh you can find me by searching the chip and made this on google you will find all four of my podcasts as well as um a couple of youtube shows that i do you can also find me at patreon.com slash the chippa if you want to help fund this crazy habit that i have um so i really appreciate it again thank you guys well, as for me, I'm a YouTube-based Let's Player of sorts, although I haven't don't have an ongoing project at the moment. It's YouTube.com slash Golden Tales Geek. It's I'm just I play random games. Most of the time, it's from my Steam back catalog, but sometimes I play Nintendo stuff as well. In fact, I, I, although I'm currently in the process of doing a co-op Let's Play of Streets of Rage 4 with a friend of mine, which is oh, really fun. One of my favorite games of all yeah, time. Yeah, um, although not it's just going up year. on his channel, not mine. I'm going to make a playlist for my channel so you guys can check it out. It's, okay. I, I, we only just recorded like the second episode like today and it's it's a such a blast i'm playing it blinds and he's played it extensively oh. so it makes it even more exciting i love it grand yeah. upper to that one okay yeah <clears throat> so indiana jones will no doubt have future adventures dealing with artifacts and scenarios that are in line with a broad worldview which allows all manner of legends to hold weight in our hearts and minds and this is going to continue long after Harrison Ford has made that journey into the undiscovered country. In other words, Indiana Jones 6 will almost certainly comprise of a combination of UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well so well <laughs> I'm sorry. There's no Annie Potts, but it works. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Um, okay, so yeah, this has been Indiana Jones and the uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And what music should we end on? Is it? Are we going to do the whole of the Adventures of Mutt? Because I think people know. Yeah, I'd, no. end on, I'd end on Journey to Akator. It's like a proper classic yeah. Indiana Jones transition sequence. Okay. Just that theme that, that makes you feel at home. Okay, so we're going to have Journey to Akator. Followed by the adventures of Mutt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much, gentlemen. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. <laughs>